Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Austin Keeney. And I am Sean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's... Uh, did we say Pro 2 last week's? No, that was Pro no, 2. No, that was Pro no. Of course not, Harley. What is, what's wrong with you? We'll just go from here. Oh, uh, no, this all stays in. Come on. <laughs> this is where the so, magic happens. I mean, just so we can dig in the heel to Piranha 3D again. <laughs> I guess so. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier approach on Let's Go podcast, where we stick to lists for better or worse. I do apologize. I am feeling a bit under the weather. Don't know exactly what the deal is, but hey, it will impact my performance somewhat. Uh, so that if I sound off, it's because of that. Or if you don't notice, then, you know. <laughs> Excellent, John. Wonderful. So this week we are going to be talking about the uh, teen comedy film Easy A from 2010. Uh, but before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure. Well, last week we talked about uh, Piranha 3D, surely one of the great films of our time, our generation. It's one of the films <laughs> of all time. Um, this, of course, meant I need to needed to watch its sequel, Piranha 3 Double D, uh, which Get is a, cre- a creature feature comedy directed by John Gulliger. It's set, set a couple of years after that first one. The piranhas are thought to have been wiped out. But some eggs have survived, and they're only hatching now for some reason. That's never explained. But uh, they get into the pipes of a water park, um, and it's sort of like a a buffet for them. This is directed by the same guy who directed all three of those Feast movies I talked about a while ago. And it's deeply stupid, just like those movies are. But it's not as mean as Feast, and it's not as mean as the first Piranha movie is either. The reputation this movie has is terrible. It has a reputation as a piece of trash. And make no mistake, it is trash. But the reputation it has as being this horrific betrayal of cinema is histrionic. It isn't good, but it isn't the abomination people make it out to be either. It's interesting. The first movie took a lot from Jaws, but this takes a lot from Jaws 3. Jaws, um, I think the was Revenge? that. No, that was four. No, that's I think four. it. I think it was Jaws 3D. I think it three was 3D. Anyways, that's the one where the shark gets into SeaWorld. <laughs> <laughs> Inexplicably, with permission from SeaWorld to use the actual like SeaWorld name and like licenses and things. Mm. Even though that movie is all about a shark killing people at SeaWorld. But anyway, um, so this is is sort of set in this amusement park, and it's very much following that sort of plot line around. It doesn't make enough of that setting, though. I don't think they do enough to really justify or or to really make good enough use of that setting. There's some stuff at the very end when all hell breaks loose, but other than that, it plays a lot like people outside of a water park. But um, it's not as cynical as the first movie is. It's cruder, a whole lot cruder, if you can believe that. But it's also more overtly funny in the horror. It's more clearly a joke and there are more broad caricatures that you're clearly supposed to be laughing at. Cartoons, which somewhat blunt some of the problems I have with the first one of just being too effectively horrific for me to have fun with it. Mm. Uh, there are no characters in this movie, though. I mentioned no characters in my plot summary. I mean, there's a reason for that, because these people are completely forgettable. They are one-dimensional they are ideas, they are not characters. Um, they're the most basic archetypes. And you get 
a handful of actors in the in the younger members of the cast that do decent work. Uh, Danielle Panabaker is the lead. She who has gone on to much bigger things than Piranha 3 Double D uh, with her work in The Flash. Um, and Katrina Bowden is also uh, pretty decent. She was in 30 Rock for a while. But um, there are a couple of fun ideas. They bring sort of David Hasselhoff in as this guest lifeguard for the opening of the park, which is a bit of fun. And uh, you have Ving Rhames and Paul Shear returning in their roles from the first movie, which I, I believe I detailed in our episode last week. And that's probably the best part of the movie, quite frankly. It's decently made. It's It's clearly cheap in its um, production values. There are a lot of very visually compressed underwater shots, so it's clear they didn't really have the cameras for it. But uh, it's also got an extended credits scene with the intercutting full-screen bloopers like every few seconds to get the thing over an 80-minute runtime. Um, But, you know, you really have to question, was this necessary? It really wasn't. And uh, it has no real purpose it has no real justification for being so uh you know it is it is what it is it's a movie called piranha 3 double d and it i mean it does what it says on the tin to expect more from it is to really expect too much yes it's, it's to defy common sense really um i next saw the last exorcism it is Ooh. a found footage horror movie directed by daniel stam and it follows a uh, preacher with a crisis of faith named Cotton Marcus. He's played by Patrick Fabian, who people would now know from Better Call Saul. Um, and he has come to believe, after many years of doing this preaching and exorcism thing, that exorcisms are actually just nonsense. That it's mostly just sick people who need medical help, um, mental health help, and not a priest. And so he has partnered with these documentary people to prove it. He's called in to perform an exorcism on a girl in the deep south of America, Nell Sweetser, played by Ashley Bell. And they go out to her home in the middle of nowhere, and of course it does not go as planned. Um, This is a really interesting movie until it face plants in the last five minutes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, It takes all of the sense of ambiguity away. It's actually like a surprisingly quiet, subdued story about the danger of religious dogma. Um, and it takes care to obscure the cause of what's going on. Is it possession? Is it trauma? Is it a psychological episode? Is it abuse? Um, is it abuse, yeah. And it's at its best with that stuff. There is commentary here, like actual considered themes going throughout it about religion's historical use as a method of control, religious extremism, shame related to you know, those ideas of, you know, sin and punishment and that can come from really being deep in that worldview. Um, And Cotton is a really interesting lead. I could have used a lot more time with him, actually, because he's a fraud. Like, he's this guy who's been performing... He's basically a showman who has been, you know, become this very popular preacher, even though his heart's not really in it and he knows that the exorcism's bullshit. But he's this kind-hearted one. And just because he believes the exorcisms are bullshit doesn't mean he doesn't believe in God. It's this very sort of complex, which feels true, feels real. It it doesn't. It's this very sort of complex and nuanced view of this guy's beliefs in in a way that was refreshing, considering how black and white it is often portrayed in movies, at least like this. Um, 
and Fabian is a pretty good actor. He's, uh, like I said, gone on to Better Call Saul. He's, uh, he's a lot of fun in this role. Um, he's sort of charming and witty when he needs to be at the start, but then when the shit starts hitting the fan, you, you go with him on that as well. But Belle is really the standout here as the possessed girl. Um, she apparently has, a, you know, just from the IMDb trivia page, but she apparently has some sort of um, thing where her joints are much more flexible than Double the average jointed. person's. No, no, it was something else. I can't remember what, exactly what, but basically all of the contortions and things that she does in this movie, she did herself with no double. Um, and she's really good. Uh, I do think that the found footage conceit is poorly used, though. It There are pretty obvious cuts at a lot of points where they've mm. hidden things, um, and it really beggars belief that these people would keep filming beyond a certain point, more actually than in most horror movies, I would say. Um, and uh, the music is distracting because they actually use um, non-diegetic music in it um, because it's which beggars the question of okay so this was actually released as a documentary so someone mm. got this edited it and scored it but then that makes absolutely no sense with the sequel but of course the less said about the sequel the better mm. um that ending though really i mean it's it completely disrupts the tightrope walk that they've been on it descends into batshit nonsense. It's abrupt, unearned, and dumb. And it kind of ruins the movie in a way I haven't seen an ending so quickly undo the work of its uh, runtime preceding it in, in quite a while. Mm. But if you'd like to check it out, it's available for streaming in Australia on Plex, if anyone's interested. I next saw The Last Exorcism Part 2. The Lastest Exorcism. Yes, which I suppose would have made the first movie the penultimate exorcism. This is a horror movie, but it is not found footage. They dropped that conceit. It's just made as a regular movie. It's directed by Ed Gas Donnelly, and it picks up immediately after the end of the first one. Nell is apparently the sole survivor of some undefined event that has killed pretty much everyone who was in the last five minutes of the first movie, and they never, ever explained what happened. Um, but anyway, she ends up in a... a a care home and she doesn't really have the greatest memory of what's happened to her and she tries to just be a normal teenager but her past starts to haunt her literally uh this takes the worst lessons from that first movie and just turns into a generic horror sequel it's just packed with non sequiturs and some really bewildering moments i think it's trying to do a sort of rosemary's baby thing in the sense where you you're constantly sort of suspecting that everyone's in on it Everyone's in on it except Nell, that something's going on. But it doesn't achieve that. Instead, it just sort of feels like all of these people have something going on and it's never explained. Like, it feels like it feels unfinished. It feels like dropped subplots. It feels like mm. cul-de-sacs that don't go anywhere. Um, the reason for the return haunting is baffling. Um, the connection to the first movie is very poor. A lot of it just doesn't make sense. The whole thing ends up becoming this sort of tortured puberty metaphor, in which I suppose was kind of there in bits and pieces in the first mm. movie, but is really taken to the extreme here of sort of a young woman coming into her sexuality. Um, and as you might have guessed, this movie doesn't really have the common sense or the skill to execute that particularly well. There are a handful of okay moments, only slightly okay moments, but okay moments nonetheless. The reason to watch again is Belle. 
Um, she's hugely talented, and this movie put her front and center. She really gets the opportunity to do a lot more and to show a lot more range. Um, and she deserves more for her career than her current roles. She really hasn't done anything of note since these movies. And uh, she has a lot of potential as an actress. And I think it's actually kind of strange that she hasn't been um, sort of picked up for another notable role in indie horror. I think it's it makes a lot of sense. She's definitely the highlight of this movie, one of the highlights of the first. Um, but you do get a fun supporting performance also from a guy I'd never heard of before called David Jensen, who turns up for like 15 minutes towards the end of the movie and just like knocks it out of the park. Um, it sets up a sequel that it will never get. Um, and really, it's it's just a terrible look for my guy Damien Chazelle, who inexplicably is credited as... I believe a co-screenwriter on this movie and for the story um he mm. did this three years before la la land um so yeah we all gotta start somewhere i won't hold it against him but yeah yeah damien chazelle co-screenwriter and sole credited story guy yeah. um yeah it's just the movie that kind of fails to answer the fundamentals of who what and why um and that's a big big issue with it uh i next saw devil it is a supernatural horror movie again um kind of on a tear with them here directed by john eric dowdle and it is about five people who are in an elevator going up in this sky rise um and the elevator becomes stuck and tensions rise among all these people but then the lights flicker and when they come back on, someone's dead. And then it happens again, someone else is dead. Anyways, this detective named Bowden, played by Chris Messina, is brought in to investigate. I mean, they're still trying to get this elevator moving, so he's just sort of talking to them over the intercom from the security room. But one of the security guards, named Ramirez, played by Jacob Vargas, thinks it's the devil. And uh, he's right. So this was originally made as intended to be the first installment of what they were calling The Night Chronicles, which was sort of going to be M. Night Shyamalan's um, the Twilight Zone, you know, a movie thing where it was going to mm. be anthology films, not directed by him, but him as producer sort of presenting these things. And and they were going to have, I think the second one was going to be kind of like 12 Angry Men, but with a case involving a demon or a possession or a haunting or something. Mm. Um, and I'm actually kind of surprised they didn't go through with this because it actually, this movie did make money, a fairly decent amount of money considering its budget. Um but it really is very much like the Twilight Zone, that kind of an idea. It's it is just an idea poked and prodded for eighty minutes. And and like like I've realised that a fair few of Shyamalan's project are projects are actually um, it's essentially a faith based film. It's essentially a religious movie, and perhaps more so than any other that Shyamalan has made. Um, there's even the implication that this whole thing is caused, like the devil devil is summoned because someone died by suicide, which is a bit of an ugly thought. But thriller-wise, it does the job well enough. There's there's sort of an inherent tension to the premise. There's a decent cast of uh, sort of TV character actors to pull it off. Doesn't Shyamalan show up in it? I don't believe so. No. I must be remembering it wrong. Um, and But it's also it's short enough that it kind of papers over its flaws. It's 80 minutes and then it stops. So uh, the unfolding mystery there can sustain that pace it, it has some propulsion um messina as the detective is good but 
I gotta say that security guard he jumps to suggesting the devil like way too quickly. Mm. Like there's not a lot of supporting evidence from this for this guy. Because me jam lands face down when it's on my toes and it falls. It's like yeah, it you ten out of does. twelve times it's the devil. Listeners, Harley is not joking. That is yeah. that is something that he does because apparently everything goes wrong yeah. when the devil is around. So apparently when your toast lands down on the on the ground it means the devil is nearby i all right that's just physics it, the heavier side would yeah. yeah i like the idea though that just his presence makes things off he's like, got shit vibes yeah that his just vibes do it and i do agree that all of the stuff about figuring out the connections between people and who the devil is mm. Or if the devil is any person that uh, is interesting. I always have a fun time with elevator-based horror. <laughs> okay. What are some of your other elevator-based horror favorites? That was that, there was that one you that talked about. that movie Down. Down. Yes, the haunted elevator. Uh, there's this... I like it when elevators are used in horror movies. Right, like Shining type. Shining, Shining Evil Dead Evil Dead Rise. But um, like when elevators like slice people in two... In horror movies, that does happen from time to yeah, time. Yeah, the fact that uh, in t- in Poseidon Adventure, Freddy Prince Jr. Yeah. kicks Richard Dreyfuss down an elevator shaft not to save his own quite, life. Quite, not quite is that, horror. Is that Freddy Prince Jr.? I think so. Hmm. No, I think it is. It was, no, it's the guy from this guy from Cloverfield, Mike Vogel, I think. Yeah. Oh. Either way, and also you know speed, but that's not a horror movie. I just like speed. Well, there's the part in uh, Silence of the Lambs. That whole that thing has an elevator too. Yeah, that's more thriller rather than horror. Yes, well, no matter how successful the elevator is, the character archetypes in it grow tiresome by the yeah. end. I think that there's yeah, maybe if you'd flesh these people out a little bit more, but to flesh them out a little bit more would be to sort of kill the red herrings. I think. And um, you need more runtime. Yeah. So, but you know, there are still some creepy moments. I think that um, the masks off moment when the devil like really reveals himself. Yeah. That's a fairly effective denouement for the story. And even it's if petty. It, yeah, even if it does just crib its twist from a far more famous <laughs> mystery story. Mm, yeah. Um in some ways it seems to presage the ideas for the mo- that for the movies that Shyamalan does now so so much, so often. Um and I I think he'd do a good anthology series. Yeah. Um I think it'd be very hit or miss, but I think that his style matches it fairly well. Just these ideas that he comes up with, and these ideas that he finds and figures out ways to twist around. Um, I next saw Legend of the Guardians, The Owls of Gahul. Gahul! Which is Excellent. an animated fantasy adventure directed by Zack Snyder. Um, it is based on the book series Guardians of Gahul by Catherine Lasky, and it's set in a world talking owls. Talking animals, really, but we mainly just focus on the owls. And there's this sort of legend of the Guardians with these protector owls who saved the world years ago. And this owlet, Soren, played by Jim Sturgis, has grown up hearing stories about them and um, how great they are. But then he is owl-napped by owl Nazis mm-hmm. um, who plan to create a slave army of the owl subspecies they deem inferior to dominate and control the owl world. Nazi stuff. Yeah. Anyways, Soren escapes and he's got to find the Guardians to sort of rally uh, opponents to stop this. As you can probably tell, this is quite an odd installment in Zack Snyder's filmography. It is the odd one out. 
it's a fairly standard young adult adventure story, except with owls. It doesn't do much new or exciting. It, it does the old routine well, but it is the old routine. There's this whole subplot with Soren's brother, Clud, played by Ryan Quanton. Uh, he's kind of an asshole. He's like sympathetic to the owl Nazis, ends up joining them. Um, real shithead, probably because he's called Clud. Um, it's yeah. like how Scar's real name in The Lion King is Taka, which is Swahili for trash. So Really? <laughs> you know, you start a kid off like that, you shouldn't be surprised how it turns out. Chug. It, it gets surprisingly brutal, actually. There are a lot of, like, mm. fight scenes and things in it. I mean, Snyder loves his slow-mo fights, and uh, it, it actually, I suppose, in that sense, might make it a decent sort of stepping stone from, mm. you know, cuddlier adventure stories to something with a little more grit to it for kids. Erring um, more on the uh, Watership Down side of things. Yeah. It has a real Australian tinge to it as well. Even though the books didn't, this takes place in Australia. Uh, all of the owls are voiced by Australians. They've got half the standing reserve of actors we keep uh, in here. Hugo Weaving, Sam Neill, Jeffrey Rush, Richard Roxburgh, Anthony LaPaglia, David Wenham, Joel Edgerton, Lee Winnell, Angus Sampson, Abby Cornish, and Essie Davis are all voices in this movie. That's about as, half of them. Yeah, as are Helen Mirren and Miriam Margulies. Visually, it's spectacular. I remember thinking when I saw it when it came out, um, and it still holds up remarkably well. It despite, looks damn good. Yeah, despite the fact that they are they are going for sort of like a photorealistic style, and the tech for that has developed considerably in the last 13 years, it still looks pretty good. Um, and I will say a lot of good things also about the Peter Allen and David Hirschfelder score that it has. It's, it's a pretty strong one. But... It really undoes a lot of that goodwill because uh, they, of course, have to play a song, an original song, by Owl City, which plays when the owls reach the Owl City. So fuck you, movie. Um, it's a good song. I like Owl City. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that song. Um, sure. But uh, it's available for streaming on Prime Video, Binge, Foxtel Now, and Stan, if anyone is interested. Lastly this week... I watched another Shakespeare pro shot, another pro shot from the Globe, Shakespeare's Globe, uh, this time for Love's Labour's Lost. It's okay. just a romantic comedy directed by Dominic Dromgoul. It's a performance of the Shakespeare play of the same name. It's set in the Kingdom of Navarre, where King Ferdinand, played by Philip Cumbus, and three of his buddies have sworn to lock themselves away in study for three years, and no girls are allowed. Incel shit. Yeah. <laughs> sort of like a three-year-long no-fab November kind of thing. <laughs> um, but then the Princess of France, played by Michelle Terry, and three ladies-in-waiting come to visit. and Cross-dressing, 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 cross-dressing. Same amount of, of people, mm. same amount of women, same amount of men. So what do you think is going to happen there? Mm, I don't know. No cross-dressing, Harley. Um, Does have weddings, though. No, it doesn't. Oh. Um. It's a bit of an odd duck play, actually. There's virtually no plot to it. It's all dialogue. And the, the dialogue is phenomenal. It's, it's some of Shakespeare's best. It's all about wordplay and wit. And there's so many levels of everything. It's it's a peculiar thing that he didn't really do as much elsewhere. The poetry is... There is poetry in it. It's, uh, some of it's written in rhyming verse. But it's just so dense in its construction and, like, puns and references and back and forth and 
different meanings depending on the reading and the stressing of different you know ideas within the sentence it's very very unusual and it's also an extremely overt comedy uh a lot more overt than a lot of the shakespeare comedies are um a lot of that comedy comes out of this almost sort of competition of snarky dialogue that these characters have um and it actually ends up being kind of caustic in its its rom-com elements that these men and women are sort of just sort of sniping at each other a lot of the time almost competing to see who can be the snarkiest and it's kind of hard watching it to believe that it's written by the same guy who wrote Romeo and Juliet one of the most guileless most earnest presentations of you know um, romantic courting that there ever has been but um, you the supporting characters are some of the most entertaining there's a random Spaniard named Don Armado who sort of just wanders through the play and he's played in this version really brilliantly by Paul Reddy as just this really incompetent sap um, with like a ridiculous over-the-top accent that I'm sure is not very culturally sensitive. Uh, and it, that seems to be traditionally the way the part is played. Timothy Spall played him in the Kenneth Branagh movie I watched and it was similarly extreme, but Timothy Spall's version was more competent than this guy's. Um, but it is a production in general that is playing to the cheap seats. It is very broad in every sense, in the slapstick, in the performances. And it works, except for a guy named Fergal Mikkel Heron, uh, who is, in my view, anti-comedy. Um, they keep casting him in these. He was in another one. I think it might actually be the uh, As You Like It production yes it was no no sorry it's it wasn't it was um romeo and juliet romeo and juliet who do you play um, in that the fool and he's a terrible fool i do feel sorry for people named fergal because i mean it can't be easy and, and it all leads to this like frankly bizarre ending that kind of goes nowhere and doesn't resolve anything so, like like i said it's a very odd play in terms of its structure in terms of its plot and then it ends with a song about cuckoldry for some reason <laughs> Even though that's not that's not really been a factor in the play. Um, in the... How far do they get into their three years? Like less than a week. Oh. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. So the song about cuckoldry is in the actual script, yeah. I believe so. I mean, I don't think it's something that the Globe added. It'd be um, a weird thing if they did. Yeah, but uh, overall, it's amusing, but it's quite messy and aimless in a way that isn't destructive, but is very. Just fascinating from a mm, atypical an academic perspective, yeah. Mm. Um, oh, it's just you know Shakespeare's version of a you know sex comedy, basically. Like I, I, I think mean, it's most of his comedies are sex. I comedies, think it's interesting fair. that he does end it with a song about cuckoldry because it doesn't seem like the kind of thing someone would add in. It's not like they woke up cold sweat middle of the night with Shakespeare yeah. leaning over their bed saying, "Hey, bro." This is going to really be funny. See, now I'm wondering. Now I'm going to go and look it up. Does it end with that originally? Um, it would appear so. Mm-hmm. And, and does it seem like Shakespeare's got a lot of opinions on the matter? I guess John is asking, is it pro or anti-cuckoldry? Oh, I'm trying to find the lyrics here. Because I'm just fascinated on Shakespeare's... Where does Shakespeare land? Where does Shakespeare land on cuckoldry? Mm. The important... Uh, We're asking the important questions, questions here. Because, I mean, some of his other work would indicate not. I don't know. 
it's a lot of stuff of people mm-hmm. manipulating others into getting into relationships. Yeah, that's, but that's not necessarily co- necessarily no. But I'm saying there's certain behaviors that yeah. are akin to. Hmm. If anything, it seems like something he's deathly afraid of. Ah, oh, okay. the, the Freud. The no, because of all of the cheating and everything. So he's on the Freud end of it. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. All right, I'm just going to read you the lyrics here. You can make your own thing. When daisies pied and violets blue and lady smocks all silver white and cuckoo buds of yellow hue do paint the meadows with delight, the cuckoo then on every tree mocks married men for thus sings he, cuckoo, 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 O word of fear, unpleasing to a married ear. When shepherds pipe and oaten straws and merry larks are ploughmen's clocks, when turtles tread and rooks and doors and maidens bleach their summer smocks, the cuckoo then on every tree mocks married men, for thus sings he, cuckoo, 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 O word of fear, unpleasing to a married ear. When icicles hang by the wall and Dick the shepherd blows his nail and Tom bears logs into the hall, and milk comes frozen home in pail, when blood is nipped and oop and ways be foul, then nightly turn then nightly sings the staring owl, to wit to who a merry note, while greasy Joan doth keel the pot, when all aloud the wind the wind doth blow, and coughing drowns the parson saw, and birds sit brooding in the snow, and Marion's nose looks red and raw when roasted crabs hiss in the bowl. Then nightly sings the staring owl to wit to who a merry note while greasy Joan doth keel the pot. There's actually a reference to that particular song in Assassin's Creed Valhalla. It is a side quest <laughs> um, where this guy is hiding out of the woods and has started this rumor mill. Oh, shit. That That's right. he can solve a man's erectile dysfunction by sleeping with their wife. Um, (laughs) I forgot about that. And he's, like, portraying himself like the god Pan or some shit like that. And it's honestly hysterical. (laughs) Doesn't he end up falling out of a tree and dying? No, no, no. Uh, The way I think it ends, it's been a while since I played the game. It's either that or a house gets burnt down. No, no, that's a separate quest. Oh, okay. Uh, In this particular quest, it ends with the wife is legitimately just cheating on her husband. She's she's not... It it seems like, if anything... (laughs) She hasn't fallen for shit, and... Yeah. uh, It seems like, if anything, Shakespeare is more afraid of non-consensual cuckoldry. Cheating. Cheating, Cheating. exactly. Yeah, so... uh, yeah. Yes. Very strange because it has absolutely nothing to do with the play that yeah. we just spent yeah, two and a half hours yeah. watching. Hmm. So Maybe I guess he was just, just throwing it all. Get the bats out of his head. Maybe he just needed to put it down on paper. <laughs> yeah. Maybe this is the play he just threw his uh, his other ideas into. You know. Anyways, that's me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been so, watching? So we watched a movie that I was very excited to find on Canadian uh, Amazon Prime. I believe Canadian Amazon Prime. And it was a movie that we didn't get the chance to see in cinemas, but we had heard a lot about. Mm. A lot we'd of good things. The trailers, we'd seen other people talk about it. I am talking, of course, of Megan. Or, or Mithrigan, if you're nasty. Yeah, Mithrigan, which I'm sure gives Lawson heart palpitations every time he that sees it. That is how it is spelled. So it is how it must be said. Mithrigan, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When toy maker and roboticist Gemma 
suddenly becomes the caretaker of her orphaned eight-year-old niece, Katie, Jem is unsure and unprepared to be a parent. Under intense pressure at work, Gemma decides to pair her niece with Megan, or Mithrigan, an artificial intelligence that Gemma has created but does not fully comprehend. In her attempt to help her niece, has she created an even larger danger to the world? Of course she has, this is a horror film, but I'll let Harley uh, say his piece about it. Uh, I have said my piece before about robots and AI, uh, and this is a really good version of that type of story. Um, when I was watching it, I got mad vibes from that most recent Child's Play. Not Chucky, but the Child's Play in which Chucky is a AI robot voiced by Luke okay. Skywalker. Um, and I quite like that one, and that's a lot pulpier than this, even though this one does have its particular charms. I was less interested in checking this one out. The trailers always felt a bit, eh, to me. Uh... Particularly that line in the trailer where she says, You should probably run. Uh, I cringed pretty much every time I saw that. Uh, it is, of course, replaced with a much better line in the movie. Uh, but again, I was never really on the hype train for this one, but it is actually quite good. Um, I like its discussions about how when someone's going through a tough time, you should actually just spend time with them and not try to place them in front of a machine, and how... Placing a kid in front of a machine can't raise them properly. Uh, yeah, it's just really, really well done. Is that everything you want to say about it? Yes, I'm trying to keep that short. Okay, um, yeah, I really, really did enjoy this. It's got a lot of campy fun, and it never forgets to be a fun, entertaining horror movie. But it does have a heart to it. The movie speaks on important topics, such as reliance on technology... The handing off of parental responsibility to devices and other people, and the dependency people have on easy solutions mm. to problems. Uh, that what Harley was saying about putting a kid in front of a TV to keep them entertained for a while, and they actually do that sort of in the movie by having Megan step in and do all of the parenting things. Mm. And I think the line is to let you. Get back to the things that really matter. And I found that to be interesting. Megan, at the beginning, seems to be that solution to the problem. But she turns darker when she's tasked with helping Katie through the death of her parents. And that's where, if you give an AI enough rope, they will strangle you with it. Mm. And I find that very interesting. I have to give praise to both Amy Donald and Jenna Davis, who both portrayed Megan in this, uh, Amy Donald as the body and Jenna Davis as the voice. They do a great job at having her act so very human, but you know for a fact that she's not. And even when she gets to the point of thinking for herself, acting for herself, and going against her core function in order to follow her own star, I guess, you see that she's a sociopath, that she only really cares about herself. And that's really well done. But I have to also give props to Alison Williams as Gemma and Violet McGraw as Katie. We've uh, seen Violet McGraw before because she played young Nell in Haunting of Hill House. And she was excellent there and she's excellent here. She, when she is really distraught and 
distressed, mm. you can see a lot of great performance there. And Alison Williams plays Gemma with a certain detachment from people, which makes her more akin to the robots that she makes. And she seems to have issues dealing with the human emotions of others. I, I just have to say, bad counselor? That counselor does, is not a very good one. Yeah. Uh, our mother has done study into counseling. She has a master's in it. And she said that the, that counselor in the movie, a bad example of yeah. one. What were her big missteps? Uh, big, st- big, big missteps is... Uh, She's, she seemed to be forcing a specific type of play instead of letting yeah. things happen uh, organically in that first meeting. Forcing a dynamic that wasn't present. Um, she said she was there to observe, but she was dictating uh, how things were meant to go. Uh, the example gets better as the movie goes on, mm. but, you know, from the first sort of impetus we get from her, not a great example. Yeah. But you do get a lot of... Aside from all of these really interesting themes, and themes not only about humans' interactions with AI, but the creation of an AI's sense of self, that sort of singularity idea, you've also got a lot of campy fun. You've got, obviously, that hallway dance scene that everyone has memed to absolute death. Uh, That is a horse that has been routinely kicked uh, but you get some pretty gnarly kills in the unrated version of this, and I did enjoy some of those more campier moments. There's a part where she, she's in Megan is in the woods and gets down on all fours and sprints towards someone like some for like, literally Shia. no reason. Like yeah, like, no yeah, it's like, it's like reason some Shia, at all. It's like some actual cannibal Shia LaBeouf shit. Yeah, and that is incredibly um, creepy. The bit that creeped me out most was when she started singing Titanium. Yes. Uh, yes, because, because best, like, the, 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 best the thing, part of the movie. <laughs> the thing that I noticed, it's like, yeah, she's doing it in an attempt to comfort Katie, but the lyrics are all self-referential, mm. and it's all about how she she is be. strong and how she can't be defeated it, and it, she can't be killed. What you knock me down, but I won't fall. I am titanium. Yeah, the way you described it to me, the reason why it freaked you out is that it seems to be the first human-like misstep in yeah. terms of the care Megan's giving. And even Katie's just like, yeah, no, <laughs> this is creepy ass. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting, the formation of Megan, or Mithrigan, as her own. Yeah. She gets, like, she gets more and more human, and... I feel like every time yeah. I say what Lawson's version of the title of this movie is, I should be tipping a fedora. Mithrigan. But... Yeah, I really enjoyed this, and I loved the ending. I loved the way that Megan starts changing the her language, changing the way she's talking about certain things, yeah. and starts she to sound her own parameters. <laughs> yeah, she starts to sound like a jealous ex of Gemma's yeah. almost, and that is interesting to me. And I'm excited in the direction they take this in Mithrigan 2.0, which again should give Lawson the absolute shits. You know, it doesn't bother me as much because it's clearly so aware of what it's doing. Yeah. You know? And it technically is the character's name. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I really enjoyed this. I like... Well, yes, that was the thing, is that they justified it in-universe. Yeah, it's not as... like Five Cream. Yeah. <laughs> five Cream. <laughs> but that's what it is! Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, so that's... I scream, you scream, we all scream for Five Cream. 
so we've also picked up a television show that we've been really looking forward to, haven't had the opportunity. We've been scrounging around trying yeah. to find a way to watch it. So, like, this is a series that came out... End of the last, the be- end of last year. Yeah. And we've been waiting for it to come to Australia. And not just it, but it in its entirety. Not yeah. just the first episode and then having to get another subscription yeah. to a thing. Because it would be a whole bullshit. But it eventually came to, I shit you not, ABC iView. Um, this is, of course, Interview with the Vampire. Uh, Louis Depont, played by Jacob Anderson, retells his epic story of love, blood, and the perils of immortality to journalist, journalist Daniel Malloy, played by Eric Bogosian, nearly 49 years since their first failed attempt. But this time, Louis is intent on providing more context. Uh, chafing at the limitations of life as a black man in 1900s New Orleans, Louis finds it impossible to resist the rakish Lestat de Lioncourt, Sam Reed. Uh, played by Sam Reed, sorry. And his offer of ultimate escape, joining him as a vampire companion. Uh, this is, of course, based on the book and eventual novel series by Anne Rice. The Vampire Chronicles, I believe it's called. Yes. Uh, John, say your short yep. piece on this. I love this. The acting is superb. The dialogue sings coming out of these actors. Mm. It They do such a good job at... Showing some deference to the Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise film in certain ways, but also definitely doing its own thing. It is far more focused on the relationship between Lestat and Louis. They are a gay romance in this, and that is something that was there in the other film, but missing. Mm. The performance from Jacob Anderson is... Or it should be star-making, because it's such a great, great job that he's done. And they do not hold off on showing that Lestat is a piece of cruel, shit. Cruel, cruel person, uh, includes, including a particularly bloodthirsty sequence at the end of the first episode. Yeah. Uh, so, Interview with the Vampire by Anne Rice is one of the great vampire stories. Absolutely. It is not only one of the great vampire stories, it is one of the great queer novels. Um, because while the book was not allowed to be completely explicit, uh, it was definitely there yeah. in the text. Uh, and this series, while maintain while making rather significant changes, uh, Louis' uh, change in his history, not only to being a black man, but also to someone who uh, got into the more seedier... On yeah. the belly of life in New Orleans. The fact that he didn't have a family prior. Uh, well, and the a- fact that we actually see his family. Yeah, uh, see his. Yeah, but he didn't mother's... have like, a wife and kids prior. Yeah. Yes, the fact that we actually spent time with his family here, and the fact that again, it is much more explicitly queer. Uh, it is at its heart a queer romance tale, with all that that entails. Mm. Um, Anderson is simply phenomenal as Louis, just superb. The accent work, in particular, is of partic- of real importance. The accent work is outstanding. Um, his tonal inflection on certain words is just perfect. You can tell he's done the research into the area, but also the time. And the two different periods of Louis' life in which he's playing, there are changes in the way he speaks. Well, it's not in terms of accent, but it's in vernacular. 
And that's really cool. It's written really well. Yeah. Too. Obviously, there is some dialogue lifted from the book, but again, some of the more modern day stuff, this is set 49 years after the first interview took place. Mm. So we're reaching the character of Daniel at a much later stage in his life. And it's set in 2022. With what that means as well. Yeah. And so that has a lot of it going towards it as well. And Daniel's become much more acerbic. And and, jaded. And jaded during his time as a journalist. And he's kind of annoyed at Louis for this whole thing. Yeah. And Louis sometimes is obsequious and doesn't exactly say... Because Daniel the doesn't have the, does, Daniel doesn't have much more time. He no. is terminally ill. Uh, Sam Reed as Lestat is pretty good. I'm still waiting to see more of him. Yeah. To really see where I land, but he's a lot more charming than Tom Cruise's version, and Tom I Cruise put that a- down to the fact that we spend much more time. Yeah. With this version of Lestat, we see the courting process. We see him actually begin a romance with Louis when Louis is human. Yeah, and, and while in the Tom Cruise version of Lestat, Louis is drunk on a pier, and Lestat just goes, "You!" and turns him into a vampire. So I do love Tom Cruise's one though because he seems ephemeral. But well, Tom Reed seems like a person. Well, fair, but like Lestat at the end of the day is just an asshole. Yeah, no more, no less. He's a prick. He's a manipulative, um, abusive person. Yeah, the great strength of the long form T. Te- the great strength of long-form TV as a format of a film is we can appreciate the small, quiet moments. Like some of the moments in the first episode we get with Louis' brother, who is uh, uber-obsessed with the church and with scripture, but he's also not okay. Yeah. Uh, he has, like, serious mental illness, hmm. and that enters into that. Uh, and we get to appreciate those small, quiet moments without runtime as an issue breathing down our necks. It also just looks... Great. The sets and costume are perfect. They are exquisite. And the use of horror imagery, especially at the end of episode one, is just mm. chef kiss. That's some peak vampire stuff right there. And they're edited together so well that you do get a sense of the speed mm. at which people uh, can just have their life ripped from them. We're two episodes in and I cannot wait to see more. The interesting element here is that it's technically part of a creative venture called the Immortal Universe, along with the show The Mayfair Witches, also on AMC, because AMC originally broadcast... AMC uh, have the rights to... AMC made Mayfair Witches, AMC made Interview with the Vampire, and both of them have different works of Anne Rice. Uh, They're also working on a spin-off of the two. I don't really quite remember what it's called. But I'll, I'll look it up. Just keep it's it's a pretty interesting concept mm, because it's all about uh, because like the to be fair the Mayway the Mayfair witches uh book stuff that is in universe yeah like in the interview of the vampire other creatures exist it's not just vampires yeah and I find that very it's interesting. witches I don't know about werewolves um but I love this appreciation of the works of Anne Rice. Yeah, she and is such a it is, great It is author. such a shame that we have lost her. Um, I believe it was last year. Such a great gothic mind. Um, like, because she was vampire not- fulfills the promise of John Polidori's original <laughs> The Vampire and does it so much better. Because at the end of the day, she was not only interested in 
the mythology of yeah. these creatures, but also the subcultures that she was spending time with, the queer community, all of these different feminist groups that she spent time with. And it all wrapped into a lot of the work she did. Yeah. And pulling from that kind of stuff, she was able to find a real humanity in not only the vampires, but in the witches and the concepts of immortality and the toll it takes. Because at the end of the day, while they are creatures of the night, they are drastically human. They're still people. Uh, in their faults, in their dreams, in their base pettiness. Yeah. And all of that's kind of wrapped up in Lestat, oh, yeah. ultimately. You can see tragedy in him, but also mm. acts of supreme, unnecessary cruelty. Yeah. Um, I personally adore the film. Yeah, I love it too. Uh, but what that has going against it is that, uh, from what I read, Pitt and Cruz were hesitant on the gay subtext, uh, and Antonio Banderas was like 100%, <laughs> like, full-on, Amand is like 100% gay. Yeah. Good and, and that's fantastic to see. Oh, um, with how physically <laughs> close in proximity he and Brad Pitt Brad Pitt get. was less hesitant mm. than Tom Cruise was. Which is weird um, because Tom Cruise as Lestat Tom, Tom Cruise is, is a Lestat, gay it, icon. Tom Cruise's Lestat is such a queen. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> such it's iconic. Yeah. Well Scientology, um, unless I'm mistaken, they have a pretty homophobic yeah. Yeah. element to it. And he was and he's been a Scientologist for quite a long time. Oh, oh yeah. Scientology being extremely dodgy, you don't say. <laughs> uh, but no, I I'm really, really loving this. Yeah, I do too. Like at uh, the end of the first episode, I was just smiling ear to ear. Like this extra, the extra time we get with Louis at the beginning as a human and with his family really strengthens the story. Mm. I find uh, it just goes to show what was breezed past in the film. Yeah, by necessity. By course. necessity. Um. So no, I'm I'm really happy with it. I can't wait to watch more of it. It's getting a second season. It's already been renewed. Yeah. That third series they're working on is following the secret order organization Order of the Talamasca. Right. Which is apparently in several of Rice's books. It's a secret society set up to research, watch over, and keep track of the paranormal phenomenon, including witches, spirits, werewolves, and vampires. Rice called them psychic detectives. That kicks ass. Interesting. I, I That is sort of interesting, the idea of taking the... Focus away from the quote-unquote monsters, yeah. and I'm I, I, unsure how a cop story in this uh, would fit with uh, the vibe. I I know I might regret saying this, but it does remind me of that Clover group from uh, Glass, sort mm. of, sort of, yeah. Uh, hopefully, more successful than that shitty subplot. Um, but yeah, so that's what we're seeing within the week. Now we will play for you a tra a trailer to Easy A. Let me just begin by saying that there are two sides to every story, and this is my side, the right one. I used to be anonymous, a nothing, a non-entity. Olive, that's your name, right? Yeah, uh, we've had nine classes together since kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So here it is, part one. Do you want to go out with me? Brandon, just a couple hours ago, you told me you were gay. You said I should pretend to be straight. I didn't mean with me. I am tormented every day at school. Just one good imaginary fling. Which brings us to part two. Is that Olive with Brandon? 
to grunt and make it convincing. Oh! Stop, stop! Oh, I'm not gonna stop! You ready for the grand finale? Yeah. What? Oh! Yeah! Thank you. thought that pretending to lose my virginity would be a little more special. Judy Bloom should have prepared me for that. Brandon told me what you did for him. No, he told me the truth. I was just hoping that maybe you could do the same for me. So whether I liked it or not, I was open for business. 20% off to Bath & Body Works? Is that how much our imaginary trust spent to you? I fake rocked your world. We need to pray for her, but we also need to get her the hell out of here. Amen. On Monday, things took a turn for the scandalous. Screw all these people, Olive. Ironically, we were studying the Scarlet Letter. This girl named Hester Prynne has an affair with a minister, is besmirched, and made to wear a red A for adulterer. Perhaps you should embroider a red A on your wardrobe. I'm not proud of this. I wanna hold them like they do in Texas, No judgment, but you kind of look like a stripper. Mom. A high-end stripper for governors or athletes. Is she the one everyone's talking about? Yes. I know exactly what you're doing. If I promise not to tell anyone, can I kiss you right now? I had a similar situation when I was your age. I had a horrible reputation. Why? Because I saw a whole bunch of people. Mostly guys. Mom! There's a higher power that will judge you for your indecency. Tom Cruise. That was the trailer for Easy A. It's a teen comedy directed by Will Gluck, and it follows an almost preternaturally quick-witted high schooler named Olive, played by Emma Stone. She's a bit of an odd duck, a mystery instantly solved when one gets a glimpse of her parents, Rosemary, played by Patricia Clarkson, and Dill, played by Stanley Tucci. After lying to a friend, Rhiannon, played by Ailey Michalka, who knows, apologies to Miss Michalka, Michalka, I, yeah. After lying to her to get out of a social engagement, a series of misunderstandings lead to Olive making up a story about losing her virginity in a one-night stand, which she tells Rhiannon in confidence in the girls' bathroom at school. Unfortunately, the belligerently religious Marianne, played by... Amanda Bynes was in one of the stalls, and soon the whole school has heard of Olive's imaginary tryst. Nonplussed, Olive seems content to just let bygones be bygones, but she's soon approached by Brandon, played by Dan Bird, a gay guy in her class. He's a victim of relentless bullying, and the homophobic Principal Gibbons, played by Malcolm McDowell, is no help. Brandon wants to convince the school he's straight by staging a fake fling with Olive at a party. Olive agrees, and the deed is fake done. Brandon is celebrated by his peers, and Olive is ostracized by the whole school community. Everyone that is, everyone that is except for the nerds and the outcasts. Brandon told his friends the truth, and soon Olive is repeating the scheme frequently in return for gift cards. Marianne sharpens her pitchforks, but Olive is mostly unfazed. There are only two things that give her pause. The first is the weirdly dark subplot where she discovers through happenstance that her school counsellor, Mrs. Griffith, played by Lisa Kudrow, is cheating on her husband, Olive's favourite teacher, Mr. Griffith, played by Thomas Hayden Church, with one of her students. The second is her crush on Todd, played by Penn Badgley, for whom she has harboured feelings for years and who is the only person in the school that treats her with any decency. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we think of 
Easy A. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I really enjoyed this. I thought this was witty. It was funny. It was surprisingly at first, but of course, uh, well, after I found out about Bert V. Royal, the writer, immensely right-headed in a lot of ways in terms of about, you know, a woman's right to be sexually active without anyone being shitty towards her. Mm. Uh, I love the performance of Olive by Emma Stone and Stanley Tucci as her dad. Both parents in this are gold tier. They're, they're like tippy top of... They're just fantastic. They're just fantastic. I loved them. They're great. Yep. All right. You ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I had a really good time with this. I loved the connections drawn to the Scarlet Letter. Uh, and I love the illusions that that concept uh, gives to uh, young adult movies addressing books and whatnot. That one's funny. Uh, I will second, John. This movie is whip smart. The dialogue is god tier stuff. It's so funny. And the parents are. Uh, Olive's parents make it unfair for real parents everywhere. <laughs> like, they set an unfair precedence. Um, I will third. Pretty much everything you guys have said, I really enjoy this movie. I think it's hilarious. I think it's incredibly witty. It's smart. I do think there are a few things that kind of stick out as having aged a little bit poorly. Chief among them, that weird, like, really dark subplot. Yeah. <laughs> that um, I mean, kind of comes out of nowhere. I have Lisa Kudrow. Sean, I, I have say... 30 seconds. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, just a star-making performance by Emma Stone. And... Um, Really, this is the movie that made her... Uh, she had the help the following year, but I, I think in this movie you see right away that she is a movie star. Mm. Oh, yeah. And, and you see her comedic talents. Oh, yeah. like And her skill with dialogue, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, it just sings coming out of her. Well, it sings are coming out of everyone. Yeah. Well, why don't we start there? Because I've seen it argued, and I think it's probably correct... That if it's not someone like Emma Stone in this part, if it's not someone knocking it out of the park so completely, then this actually becomes a really kind of disturbing and uncomfortable movie. Yeah. You, you need someone... Because this girl is being put through hell by all of the other kids at her school. But yeah. Emma Stone seems to just handle it so effortlessly and it just seems to... Mm. Like water off a duck's back. Well, it really to me felt felt like a situation of a the way that some people cook frogs. Uh, the the temperature slowly being brought up so the frog doesn't know anything's wrong. Yeah, and the way that she rolls with the punches is preternatural, as you put it, in terms of her mm. wit. And it is almost like a martial artist using other people's momentum. <laughs> to get them on the back foot. And yeah. I think that is such an interesting choice well, in terms of the direction to take Olive as a character. Well, one of the things we noticed uh, throughout the movie, going back to one of the first scenes we have of her, is when she opens that card and it's got that song playing through it. And at the beginning, she's annoyed by it, but the more and more it plays, the more and more into it and obsessed with it she gets. And that is kind of how her plan goes. It's like at the beginning it's annoying, yeah. but then she just starts embracing it and embracing it to, to the point fault. where it gets Yeah. Like it is her nature to take shit too far, mm. it seems. And 
That's a really interesting yeah. idea for her character. It's a great microcosm of the entire film. Film, yeah. Almost. Um, yeah, it's it's really Stone's show in yeah. a lot of ways, and it does. Doesn't hurt that she's got incredible chemistry with everyone. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's it's very carefully set up, I think, because she does seem almost, I would argue, unrealistically at ease with a lot of what's happening to her. Yeah. Because, like, it really doesn't bother her that much when her friend, like, abandons her to join the mob. It really doesn't bother her that much when everyone's screaming at her and, mm. you know, look, giving her sideways looks. And we get kind of part of... We get kind of like, uh, oh, okay, it's sort of the Rosetta Stone once you see Patricia Clarkson and Stanley Tucci. You're kind of like, okay, that's why this, this girl is the way she is. It's because of her, who her parents are. But um, I do think... Emma Stone is a really key part to making this whole thing work because if it is someone who I don't even know quite how to put it, someone who seems less able to absorb the blow, for lack of a better term, mm. someone who it would just kind of seem like a person just being bullied for an hour and a half. Yeah, which is basically yeah. Like a, what it is. It feels like a nuke could go off and Olive and her family would just stand in the blowback and they'd be fine. No, they they like, take that chance to roast some marshmallows on that shit. Yeah. They're um, that kind of people. They're supernaturally chill. And it's it's walking a strange line between having Olive be so unmoved by yeah. it that she's almost a cartoon. I don't want to... I'm sounding negative. I don't intend yeah. to be. It's one of the great joys of this movie to see... Olive do her little verbal jujitsu with everyone who even tries to get the upper hand on it. But oh yeah, and when Mary Ann tries to, it, it's it's like watching someone beat up somebody whose hands and legs are tied behind their back. But it's a fine line to walk between having this incredibly capable person who is not being affected by anything. It seems mm. to then the sort of turn that it takes just enough at the end. I mean, I think of two scenes. I think of the scene where. She's confessing in the confession booth at the church, yeah. even though she doesn't know the priest is there. And I think of the scene where the guy tries to force himself on her in the parking yeah. lot. And those and two then scenes... the scene with Penn Badgley in the car after. Yeah, yeah. But those two scenes really are the ones where you kind of... Emma Stone is so necessary. An actress of the calibre of yeah, Emma Stone yeah. is no, no necessary because she's the only an actress of that calibre can make that kind of mid-air switch that's yeah, necessary. Yeah. That pivot to, on a dime. Yeah, well, to, like I said, to land the seriousness while also not completely killing the momentum of the comedy. Yeah, yeah. like I and said... It, and it, it makes the character fuller and more three-dimensional. I mean, some yeah. of her line readings, you know, there's it's an odd little trick that it pulls where the character suddenly it gets to her and it doesn't feel out of nowhere. It feels like a, the natural conclusion to what she's been going through in yeah. a way that I think, you know, there's that, um, there's that the line that, that she says. The straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, there's that line she says in the booth where she says something like, everyone hates me and I kind of hate me too. Mm-hmm. Um, and Well, there's... like I said, the temperature keeps getting turned yeah. up gradually and she doesn't, I, I don't think for most of it she's willing to accept the the price of what mm. this is the, i think it's the moment exacted. that actual stakes come in because as long as she's lying just about 
little things, it doesn't really matter to her. She's getting something out of it. But well, when a thing. marriage okay. is in danger, when well, someone's no, when family, people start lying about her, and they're not her lies over it. Yeah, yeah. The and story that's just how lies work. But I want to ask that: Why exactly is she doing this? Because I don't think the movie ever gives us a great reason. I um, think she's she likes. There's the sort of the suggestion maybe. that she likes she likes to not necessarily be the center of attention, but she likes to sort of stick people stick a thumb in people's eye, you know? Yeah. Fine. you what's that line? You think I'm a skank? Well I'm gonna be the dirtiest skank you've ever seen. Yeah. Mm. Um and there is that sort of like a bloody mindedness there that seems to motivate a lot of it. But then like I the thing that really trips me up is the whole thing with her friend. Um the whole thing yeah. with Rhiannon and the separation of those two characters which is never even really resolved by the end of the movie not really yeah um that I think kind that of makes is, me wonder i think that's one of the big faults yeah when the movie like when it splits them up i think well, they should have been partners in crime no but it falls it eh, i don't know it just well i don't necess- be- i don't necessarily see the friend behaving the way that like she switches on such a dime so quickly yeah that and so early in the process too that it is a little jarring for me. But like yeah. the 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 thing of it is is that we've got this storyline where we just have to buy into the fact and I do happily because I'm I have a lot of fun watching this movie, but we have hmm. to buy into the fact that Olive makes this choice and no matter how out of control it continues to get, she continues to choose to commit further and to hmm. to dig that hole deeper and deeper and deeper in a way that I don't believe it ever truly justifies from a character perspective. Yeah. I do get that. Um, but like I said, it does seem to be Olive's nature to take things too far. Yeah. And in to, that bloody mindedness, she sort of left a friend that a friend sort of get to the like the, the, to the side. And when it comes to the whole I'll be the dirtiest skank you've ever seen thing, like putting on pretty much article every article of her clothing, the the red A, uh there's no small amount of Pettiness? Oh yeah. Coming from Olive? There's a line that she says in one of the web um one of the webcast bits very early on when she she's she's trying to explain why she kept going with coming up with the story in the bathroom. And she says something about maybe it was just the first time that I felt stronger than Rianne or something along those lines. Mm. So there seems to be sort of implication that she she likes the idea of herself that's being presented or that she likes the status that it seems to yeah to give her mm. but that, that it then changes gets... the power dynamic yeah but that's and i've got no problem with that as a as a suggestion i just think that the movie doesn't really touch that beyond mm. sort of chucking it out there as an idea and then backing away yeah. and i think that's that they're for you you're right john that this movie is is very right-headed about a lot of the things that really matter but there are just a few things there that I, I'm not going to blame it for because of the time in which it was made and because it's clearly got its heart in the right place. But, like, where it ends up kind of moving... Like, I, I keep referencing that subplot with the, the yeah. guidance counsellor. Like, that's an insane thing to just chuck yeah. in the middle of this movie and not really reckon with it. And, I mean, I get it was... It, I mean, it seems so recent, but even, like, 2010, the whole general view of that kind of stuff it was still so gendered it was still so weird and and in retrospect looking back you know woody allen's still making movies at that time i mean it, you know it's it was 
further back than we actually remember it being, if that makes sense. But still, that seems like such an insane thing to bring out of nowhere. And then the way that it sort of lands on, oh, the right call, or she believes the right call for her to make is to lie about this. I mean, they they say it's not a crime. They're quite good at that. Good at that. They stress that that this guy has been held back for like four years. But still, even if it's not a crime, it's such an extraordinary breach of power yeah. dynamics of the responsibility of this woman. Um, but the way that the movie sort of comes down on it at the beginning there as oh, I need to, I'm going to lie to save a marriage, and I don't feel bad about that. I she even says it later on after it all comes out. I don't feel bad about lying for her. And I'm like, well, that's, I'm not sure you've, well, I'm, I'm, in fact, I know you've not landed on the right call here because mm-hmm. even putting aside like the creepy aspect of it, there's the fact that she's basically just like, oh yeah, sure, his wife's cheating on her, but cheating on him, but uh, I'm just going to cover that up because I like him so much, you know? Mm. Um, it's a bit of a, just an odd thing. And, it, and I just feel like that subplot is this kind of giant, thorny knot sitting in the middle of this movie yeah and in the and it has some of the great dramatic moments i think that thomas hayden church is brilliant in it Mm, um especially at the the stuff at the end once he knows but it really is just this big honking thing sitting (laughs) in the we seem to be coming up against a lot of those yeah sitting in the third act that is um yeah i didn't see it coming like it jumps out at you. Well, I was waiting for Holly it to cut away flawed. from that. I was waiting for it to cut away from that phone call and for it to be Amanda Bynes, and that they were just going to be hypocrites. Yeah. Um, but Holly was floored by it. I, I I saw his face, and he was, was like, like, "What?" what? Yeah. It it does feel much too serious to be in something presenting itself so lightheartedly, but actually kind of not being completely lighthearted in and of itself. And that the fact that she then tries to reverse it is not because of the inherent wrongness of it. She tries to reverse it because it's gotten out of control for her and she needs someone to confirm it was all made up in the first place. And she needs to sort of burn down all of the lies. Yeah. Consequences be damned. Like, just salt the earth kind of thing. It's not because she's woke up and saying, oh, wait, this is pretty fucked up. It's (laughs) because of something else. And I think that's just a very strange... Yeah. A um, couple of other things. I think that, and this is not, um, this is not sort of a, a criticism of the movie. This one is. It is thankfully, I think now a little bit harder to buy into a gay kid going to such great lengths to pretend that he's straight in high yeah. school. I mean, maybe it's just my perception as someone who hasn't been in high school for twelve years now. But um, I think. It feels to me like we've progressed far enough as a culture that that's not. Yeah. Um, but I remember 2010. I'm not, yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to say it's it's brilliant. Yeah. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's got really awful moments. But it seems like it wouldn't be so all-encompassingly awful. Yeah. That yeah, it just you know the current generation, the, yeah. the younglings, the kids. Yeah. Um. But I remember 2010. Yeah. And and oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was um, not easy for people then. I no. had friends. Not, not easy for anyone who was different in any way. Yeah. yeah. And maybe we're all talking out of our asses. You know, maybe it's just we haven't been in high school, so we don't know that yeah. it's still an absolute yeah. shit show. It could very well be. Um, but that's the other thing that that I will say, I think, with a little more authority as someone who was in high school 
at, and was about the age that these characters are in 2010 when this movie came out. I was maybe a year younger. I don't buy for a second that this whole school gives a shit. <laughs> That's what I, I said to Joy. If, if, if I were in that school and I got that text message, I'm just like, okay, I don't care. I got shit to do. <laughs> yeah. Like, look, I've, I've, you know me, I'm not really a gossipy kind of person. I don't really care. I don't, I've got no time for that Degrassi high bullshit. Well, but it's, when I was in high school, yeah. it, I knew that stuff was going on with some of the kids, you know, some of the other teenagers. It. Yeah. I hear that, oh, so-and-so is hooking up with so-and-so. And I'm like this, you know, social wallflower. So if I'm hearing about it, it's pretty bloody common knowledge. So, and no one gave a shit. No one, like, came out with signs and stood on the front lawn of the school and screamed at these people. Like, I don't buy in the year of our Lord 2010 that that school gives a shit. Like, maybe those hyper-religious kids do. Like, maybe Amanda Bynes does. But I went to a Catholic school and no one gave a shit in Catholic school. Well, like, and as the movie, like, this movie likes to say, uh, I love the scene at the beginning where the principal, uh, talks about, this is a public school. (laughs) my job is to keep girls off the pole and keep cr- crack pipes out of the hands of the boys. If I do that, then I've done my job. I get I've a, my I bonus. Get a bonus. I get a kickback. Yeah. I get and a kickback. Angry Malcolm McDowell too, just showing up. Yeah, it's such a face random... like a slapped ass. It's, it's, it's like... just excellent. <laughs> it's like... such a random like. Oh wait, Michael McDowell. Malcolm McDowell is it? He wandered onto set. He was just saying this stuff and we just kept rolling. <laughs> maybe maybe they found him at catering. And he's just like what? they found him scrounging up leftover pieces of bread and soup. And they're just like, hey, do you want to earn that meal? He's like, okay. I already ate, but fine. <laughs> I already ate, but sure. Um, like, it's like gonna security... be cold winter, I need all I can get. What 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 Harley? He's stalking up so he can hide. What do you do you think the thing was they found him shoving bread rolls into his cheeks like a chipmunk? No, he's yeah. just and like the security guards went behind him and no. said, Mr. McDowell, it's either you're in this movie or you need to leave. No, he was he was dressed exactly how he was <laughs> in the movie, and he's just been ladling soup into the pocket. I do love our the jacket. I do love how our image of Hobo with a shotgun, Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> like, tramp vagrant Malcolm McDowell. Well, I like that's the thing. in. He is the hobo king. Yeah. I love Malcolm McDowell. I think yeah. he's a spectacular actor, but you look at his resume and you're like, what the hell are you doing, man? Yeah. Like, because it's not even like he's picked a, he's not even like he's picked a lane, right? It's not even yeah. like he's said, I just do trash now, like um, John Travolta or whatever. He will turn up in these legit things and be really good in them. And but then also, he will just the randomly... The nomad. He moves from town to town. He, he, he's like the characters in Touched by an Angel. He wanders the earth. He's Eric Roberts, but with respectability still. <laughs> yes. He's like... He's Eric Roberts, but less desperate. He just wants to work in like everything he can. He can, and sometimes that means you take a job voicing a talking dog in a Christmas movie called Pups Alone, which appears to just be a Home Alone ripoff with dogs. Um, or is it because he's sort of an acting shark? If he stops moving, he dies. He dies. Like, well, do you, do you think when he sits down of an evening with again? I don't know why we've gotten on to. Soup being his favorite meal, but like he's got a bowl of soup in his hand and he's staring at it like, 
Who am I if I'm not someone else? Well, John, it's the appeal of four walls, a roof, and carpeted floor. <laughs> oh, doesn't have to be carpeted. Doesn't have to be carpeted. Doesn't have to be carpeted. He can do vinyl in a pinch. Uh, carpets um, keep the cold out. Um, but he does Pups Alone in 2021, right? But at the same year, he's like doing voice roles on that Castlevania Netflix show. He's... Oh, sick. Yeah, he's um, starting um, a series regular role on a Canadian television that show that he's still doing. The he, fact that he never voiced a villain on The Flash is bizarre. Yeah. Well, maybe because Canada's too cold. He turns up in Bombshell, the Lithgow mm. movie, as mm. Rupert Murdoch. Um, That's perfect, actually. And he turns up in Truth Seekers, the Nick Frost Amazon yep, show. Yeah, watched that. Um, he was on, funny in that, yeah. He's a series regular on that, like, prestigious Golden Globe-winning Mozart in the Jungle show on Amazon. Mm. It was one of the very early shows that Amazon yeah. had. They really pushed it. And then he, like, he does all sorts of things, like he'll do a voice in um, Elder Scrolls, whatever. Uh he keeps working with Rob Zombie. Um, but, like, he he's in these mainstream stuff. He's in one of the Call of Duty zombie modes from the looks of it. He, he did a version... On a on a Pink Floyd's The Wall tribute album, he did a version of The Trial where he played every role. Mm. And it's like, uh, it's like, okay, so I've got all of these artists, these musicians, guitarists, drummers, bass players, actual singers, Malcolm McDowell. Huh. You just you gotta you, you gotta feel for the people who are in the audition room and Malcolm McDowell walks in and you just go, I don't want to get stabbed today. Do you think people like, hand him oh Do you my think people God. hand him money on the street? It's like if you're in the room with him, it's like I don't get stabbed, he gets the guys, role. Guys You'll fight Chlorine. Guys, guys, emergency podcast, emergency podcast. A twenty eleven T V movie called Suing the Devil, in which he plays Satan, who is sued for $8 trillion by a down-and-out law student and turns up in court to defend himself. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, okay. He comes in like, I resent the allegations. My defense team will make a field day of all of them. I will be acquitted, and it will be a cold day in hell all right, I'm going. any of my money. I'm going <laughs> to send you a photo of the poster oh, for this movie. Please, please be a bad, like, toy store, almost, horns and little dodgy cave. No, I want no. this... Oh, trashier than that. Trashier than dollar store? Oh, are we going down to 50 cents? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the number 23. Kind of. <laughs> and it yeah. just has, it has random, random stuff up there. Like war, murderers, uh, oil, politics, but then it just has noise. <laughs> if he looks like he's made of plastic, I bet you a dozen jobbing actors, like who are there working two jobs just to get a roof of their head yeah. to get roles, see this guy in their sleep. Yeah. This is this is like the shadow man for gigging actors. Yeah, like you see me walk into the room, it's like you're done. No, no, I'm, I'm thinking more like, the glove is God, um, <laughs> I am, you're all my children now, you're all my understudies now, kind of deal for Mark and <laughs> McDowell. Like, he's a acting demon of some kind. You want to break into the industry, but Malcolm McDowell steals your role? Say his name five <laughs> times in a mirror, spin around, he will snap your neck and drink your blood. It's Candyman shit. Candyman shit. 
All right, uh, so anyway, how I, do we I, get a hold of this? Where is it? How do we get a hold of the point? I mean, every time Malcolm McDowell seems to be brought up, <laughs> we just we go on an improv tangent about just how I don't know. Malcolm McDowell is the filmmaking hey, guys, equivalent of the guys, main black. Guys, it gets better. This is a faith-based movie. Yes, yes. Christian Spotlight on Entertainment raves on the cover of the Blu-ray of this film, because there's a Blu-ray. An absolute masterpiece. A sky Blu-ray. Yes! <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted it to be. Uh, all I know is, and this will be my final word on Malcolm McDowell this episode. This episode. I know for a fact that he's the only actor I know who would actually cut open something and sleep in it. For- yeah. But okay. he's always no, excellent no, when he shows up. No, it, Um... Daniel Day-Lewis would. Daniel Day-Lewis well, Day- would and has. Okay, Daniel Day-Lewis would do it for a role. Malcolm McDowell would do it because he has to. All right, this is from a... desperation, yeah. This is from a, um, a review on Amazon, a five-star review. It was honest and biblically sound. <laughs> yes! We need to... Do, we need this. We There's need no this. way that that's true. I'm not this- paying $111 for an out-of-print Blu-ray <laughs> suing the devil. Not, not even... With that absolute barn burner of a review? Mm. You kidding? Can't it's only hundred bucks. Biblically accurate. Do you know how difficult biblically accurate is? I mean, the entire thing is subjective. Dawn, we have our dignity. <laughs> do we? Do we? <laughs> do we? Well, we um, do, Harley. So have we lost our pride? Have we fallen so far? Uh, I guess we get... Back to All topic. right, so I might not be able to watch this, but maybe you will. I'm going to see if it's available <laughs> anywhere streaming. It's not available streaming anywhere in any country. <laughs> okay. I wonder- yeah, because you'd have to plug into the brain of every starving Christian actor. Uh, well, I guess let's use this as a jumping-off point <laughs> to discussing a Marianne. Yeah, why not? The last Amanda Bynes role. This was was Amanda Bynes' last acting job ever, full stop. She takes it to the hilt here. It's a pretty really enjoyable It's a pretty weird bow. She apparently claims that it is her performance in this movie that she caused her to stop acting. She was such a not not a fan of it. Yeah, I I can see that. Um, But Marianne remains a pretty important figure here. And I think she's performed fascinatingly. That she is just this absolute, almost, she is so spiky. And and, and the thing is, she is a hypocrite. Yeah. Because the Bible does preach uh, compassion and tolerance, but she's 100% all the time. Yeah. And that is a difficult energy to be around. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I can see Bind straining a little bit. Yes. Yes. Well, more than a little bit, frankly. You see the struggling. You can almost see the blood vessels in her head go at certain moments, like the chlamydia bit. Like, you, you can see the, gr- the gears sort of start grinding together in a way that produces just pain. Mm, okay, yeah. I need to break this down. Where did the chlamydia come from? Did it come from this guy... Is he stepping out on Amanda Bynes more than with Lisa Kudrow, or is Lisa Kudrow? I think Kudrow... it came from Lisa Kudrow. I believe right. it came from Lisa Kudrow. I think Kudrow. it came from Lisa Kudrow because she had dalliances aside from this guy. Yeah, that would make sense. That that's I I'm pretty sure that's what was implied. Because I the don't film. know if it's the kind. I don't think chlamydia sort of 
spontaneously appears. Well, shit, of course it doesn't, John. Well, let's... I'm going to go I in incognito this, mode, because I don't I just want this don't influence want us to in think the algorithm. That a sort of no, but like, what they, of... Do say, what they do say in the movie is that uh, for some women, they can be asymptomatic. They can yeah. simply be carrying it without suffering yeah. from it. Yeah. So, that is something that is true. Yes. Uh, not only with chlamydia, but several other STDs, yes. both men and women and non-binary folks, can be asymptomatic, mm. but still carry. Like all co- diseases. I've Googled it uh, in incognito mode, so it does not affect the algorithm. Of course, um, the ever-present algorithm. Your carefully curated algorithm. Uh, yes, just through sexual contact, but also it can be transferred by a mother to their baby through pregnancy, labour, or nursing. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think we're meant to assume that this is the it first dalliance away from her relationship. Yeah. But um, does that mean that? Well, that that'll be why they have to do that thing of oh, she hasn't slept with her husband in months because otherwise, how do you explain away that he doesn't have it? Yeah. It's look. It it's another in the many examples of that subplot sort of just like lurching out of the woods to stop the film in its tracks for yeah. a little bit. Almost like Frankenstein throwing the little girl into the river. No, no, no. It, it's more like the bit at the end of Friday the 13th where you think everything's smooth sailing. <laughs> and then Jason, and then Jason just, just pops out. up out of the water yeah. and crashes into the window. Yeah. Uh, but, okay, so let's talk about the the Scarlet Letter connection. It's ex- Not only is it explicitly stated, but it is... It becomes a is, plot point. It becomes a literal plot point. Hmm. Uh, because Olive begins to embroider the Scarlet A on all of her clothing as sort of a way to take back the power Mm. and turn a symbol that was used to subjugate and punish and dehumanize into something that she can embrace as a symbol of strength. Mm. Which I I do get the idea of that, that symbols have power, and especially symbols that have been used to harm, uh, not just symbols, but also words that have been used to harm, being embraced by the people who were harmed by it to transform it into something more mm. positive and powerful. Yeah. Unsuccessful in this regard. <laughs> um, because, again, the whole situation starts spiraling out of her control. The Scarlet Letter thing comes from um, the Burt v. Royal script. His original yeah. idea, really, he wanted to take three modern classics and sort of update them into a high school setting. And I think yeah. it's... Apparently, he was homeschooled. Yeah. So he never really had the high school <laughs> experience, which I, I, might be a reason why uh, you sort of chafed at the personification the of mill nonsense. The, the, the school system as it's, this monolithic oh, creature I, so inherently look, obsessed. I I remember the kinds of things that got the rumor mill going at high school. Oh, yeah. The one that just jumped into my head immediately when you said that was like, trying to figure out who it was that took a shit behind one of the buildings on the ground. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's who, the kind of stuff. Who set the fire in the, uh, yeah, it's in the boys' bathroom. But who, it wasn't yeah. one of the popular who, who bathrooms. Set, who set the fire in the least popular boys' bathroom, which was in the maths block, I believe. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. also had, like, uh, who shit themselves during parade. Did we? Yes, we did. Um, there was a rumor at my school that one of the kids had punched one of the teachers, which of course was false. But they had to like huh. it turned into a thing where the school had to like deal with it publicly. Because yeah, it had gotten so we bad. had a couple of those that we won't mention. Well, yeah, there was one time a kid brought a knife to school, but that was legit, not a rumor. Um, 
thought there was an umbrella that they were swinging around. No, there was a... Well, there was the umbrella kid, uh, <laughs> like, pulling a real penguin there. Yeah. Uh, but there was also a kid who brought a knife to school. Um, umbrella kid is like Clive from Final there was a guy. Neighbors. There was... There was a guy who walked through the school thinking it was a thoroughfare. I, we talked about this in the Brick episode, yeah. uh, um, which actually this and Brick seem to have. I felt a lot of like that kind of similar energy, DNA. Like, this microcosm. Yeah, I, I can see it very different tonally, but take, oh, yes. taking the same tack, taking the same approach to high school. That, and yeah. sort of combining the, it with this sort of literary flourish. Yeah, definitely. that the student body is this lumbering husk beast. That is only satiated by gossip and blood. Yeah. Um, the um yeah the the whole idea of taking the Scarlet Letter and sort of transferring it into high school. I get where he's coming from, but it's not. He's more just taking the idea. It's not like yeah. Ten Things I Hate About You, where it's pretty much the story done. Well, yeah, like I said, it's the it symbology. Yeah. Exactly. He's taking the symbology and he's using it to tell another story that could be seen as. Uh. Not necessarily modernizing it, but discussing Taking the same it. themes. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. And I really like this script. And he is such a fascinating writer. And Well, he's it- the creator now and the showrunner yeah. of the um, Freeform sh- anthology series Cruel Summer, hmm. um, which I've actually heard quite good things about. Um, I think I saw that he was producing that James Marsden... Uh, courtroom thing, but I think I might be mistaking that for a different guy. Right. Oh, oh. Uh, anywho, uh, so Is that I... a tangent you really want to go on? Huh? No, no, I'm just saying, like, something that I noticed uh, is that the use of the uh, Scarlet Letter here also, uh, it's a symbol that was also used in the song Love Story by Taylor Swift. Uh, and that came out in 2008, mm. I'm looking here, so I'm surprised there was no sort of crossover yeah, uh, with using that song, but I in do, particular, I do think it's interesting that this, it is like, I say about this... gossip more than it is about sort of the mob mentality of the time in which Scarlet Letter is set. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's because it's already kind of stretching credulity. Yeah. Um, you brought up Taylor Swift. I don't. I have no real relationship with the Swifties. I. I have no. I'm not embedded in that fandom. I've there are a few Taylor Swift songs that I've got on my playlist, but I'm not like deep into it. But well, that just made so much sense to me when you said that out loud. Like this seems like a Taylor Swift kind of movie, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, it seems like she would have been a better pick to play Marianne. Maybe. Uh, Maybe. Well, she hadn't really gone into acting at that yeah. point. That yeah, that was also I think have been pushing some of yeah, the sure. image stuff that they yeah. They were doing with her at the time, but no, like it. The two stories, the one in Easy A and the one in Love Story, the song, do have that sort of symbol in common. Even though it is, it is only mentioned once in the song. Yeah, but it is still something that jumped out to me yeah. when listening to it one day. Can we talk about Penn Badgley and how <laughs> I can't see him as anything but a stalker? I don't trust him. Yep. Yeah. Uh, after watching two season, three seasons of You. <laughs> I can't see Penn Badgley knowing where someone lives as anything but a threat. Like, he's got a whole parallel movie going on where yeah, he's been, be like, su- obsessing over her. I wouldn't be surprised her. if Woodchuck Todd is a person who he's got in a fucking glass box somewhere. He's been imperson- impersonating Todd since he was born. 
Yeah, he's been Joel Go- like, Joe Goldberg the whole time. Yeah, I don't know. But he is so nice here. He's just nice. And that just rings I t- hollow. And it sucks for Penn Badgley because he's he seems like a genuinely nice person and pleasant guy. But <laughs> good Lord, I, he just knocked it out of the park with Joe. And so I help myself. He should have been in more of the movie. So... He was obviously a series regular on Gossip Girl at the yeah, time yeah. this movie was made. Um, but there is actually another Gossip Girl cast member in this movie, albeit one from the revival that was recently aired and then cancelled. Guess... Is it Malcolm McDowell? It is Malcolm McDowell. It is Malcolm <laughs> McDowell. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yes. Malcolm McDowell himself. R- randomly turns up on like four episodes of that Gossip Girl revival. <laughs> hey, Heath. <laughs> It doesn't bear repeating. I do love how you said all the jokes. Look, apparently that Gossip Girl revival, I heard a lot of like weird things about it. Apparently there's like really, really like graphic sex and nudity in it. That's what I heard, yeah. yeah. I do like um, how you teed that ball up for me and I just knocked it out of the park. Um <laughs> it's true. I do I do think Penn Badgley's character should have been in more of the movie. Yeah. Then I, I would so then I would have bought bought it more. I still bought it because they had chemistry. Oh, yeah. Like, Emma Stone and Penn Badgley, all good, really good actors. Yeah. So I'm not surprised that they made it work. I just think it would have made more sense if he was in more of it. Well, I see why they're sort of keeping him out of it, because he's, he's the only one behaving at all normally. Mm. Yeah. Like, and he happens to be the mascot kid. Mm. And if the mascot kid is acting normal... You know, something's gone wrong in the water. Yeah, I, th- I think <laughs> well, someone has put Adderall into the water supply because everyone seems to be completely working at another <laughs> place. Well, that whole thing of that they used to be the devils and then um, yeah. Amanda yeah. Bynes and her mob got really upset about it and now they're the chipmunks. The woodchucks. Uh, the woodchucks. Um, that is one of the great runners, I think, of the movie is how mm. she... Is how she Refers to him as Woodchuck Todd, but then like changes it after she sees him at the at um, the lobster place. At the lobster, lobster place. Todd. Yeah, um, it's like okay, just, lobster Todd. I'd prefer Woodchuck Todd, or even just Todd. That is actually just my name. <laughs> um, we we have talked around it. It's such a good script. I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's a script that no one talks like the way people talk no. in this oh. movie. Like it is so quick and so so. Dense in its jokes and its comebacks yeah. and its it reposts and things. It gets to the point, and that's what I can. There is this sort of ineffable thing with something that you know is so well written, but you can't pick why. I think I've had issues with that in the past, but I think I've gotten onto it. It gets to the point, but it does it in such a flowery way. Like everything is so just exact. There's no sort of wasted space. I think it's it comes down to the fact I was chuckling almost nonstop. Yeah. Uh, with outside of the distressing shit, of course. But even but like Cardio saying shit, 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 in shit, shit, damn. Oh well, it, shit. that's the thing. I mean, we we've talked about how great Emma Stone is, but like this whole movie is cast yeah. perfectly. Amanda oh, yeah. Bynes, give or take, give or take, an yeah, Amanda Bynes. Sure. But like Thomas Hayden Church is brilliant. Lisa Kudrow is brilliant. Um. Thomas Stephen Church is kind of bringing his, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Australian actor. Ben Mendelsohn. He's kind of got a Ben Mendelsohn energy. I thought you were going to say he's got a Punisher energy. And I'm like... No, he's got well, Ben that... Mendelsohn energy. Yeah. 
just the the hairstyle and the way he holds his face. I'm not really seeing it. When he's walking out of his office, and you can see the tears welling up in his eyes, it does look like a stiff wind could just knock him over. I love that. So good. I love that. That's they make him kind of a realistic teacher. Like he's he's the cool teacher, but he's also not unreasonably cool. You know. Yeah. Yeah. There's the part where he's like, he sends her to detention, but then he says, yeah. yeah, if if I wasn't your teacher, I would have been cheering with you. But like, he... She's awful. The bit that I like is when he confronts her in the cafeteria and he just says, what are you doing? Yeah. yeah. Um, and But he doesn't press it. He just yeah. says, mm. what are you doing? And it's such this sort of awkward interruption because she's playing it up so much. And then here comes this teacher that she really likes and respects. And he's... Mm. He's not like judgy about it. He's just concerned. Yeah, and that's, he, that's he, he the other great. That this is a bizarre the, thing. Yeah, Lily that's the other character. great scene that they have together is when he talks about it to her in in his office, and he's talking about you know what's going on with the A on that you embroidered. I mean, I know we're doing the Scarlet Letter and everything, but and and she's there's this 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 little exchange that I really liked, which is she deflects she tries to deflect yeah. again like she always does which is like oh um you know the you should give me extra marks for this no she makes she makes some comment about the demi moore movie and and mm. all of that and he looks at her and he says stop it i know you read the book <laughs> yeah. it's such yeah. a telling moment about about um olive as yeah. as a character and it's so it tells us a lot about that teacher as well and the sort of dynamic like, that that's they a good teacher right there yeah, yeah. but you it's um, it's a uh, a fun moment and for as much as we have lauded praise on them in our 30 seconds we still haven't really talked about stanley tucci and patricia clarkson in well, this they're movie. excellent they're not particularly plot relevant no but they're so but they're good so- they're they're... Every scene with them is absolute gold. Yeah. It sets an unrealistic standard for parents everywhere. I just love when he turns to the the adopted son and is like, "Sure, you adopted? We were well, no, meant that... to. We were meant to talk about that as a family." No, that's <laughs> he. he they, they he says something like, "Oh, they're talking about like a genetic thing yeah. where they went." Yeah. Olive and her mother went through puberty later than most people. Yeah. And he says, but I'm not going to have to worry about that because I'm adopted. And Stanley Tucci just sort of goes rigid and, like, drops the thing he's holding into the sink. And he's like... He slams his hand on oh the wall. Oh, my God. Who told you? Yeah. <laughs> and We were like, supposed to discuss this as a family. Yeah, but we haven't mentioned it yet. I mean, the, the other part of that joke is that this is a white family with a black adopted son. Yeah. It's not like, just that. It's a blended family. Yeah. Emma Stone, or Olive, is not no. She is. She is. It's a word. It's a wordplay. It's wordplay that they're oh. related by marriage because right. You right. know, I thought they, that her parents were married. Right, right, right. I, I read it as oh, perhaps he married yeah. into the family. Well, it's why. Yeah, no. It's it's more in the like the weird competitive wordplay that everyone's yeah. doing, but yeah. it's. The, the almost the Shakespearean levels of... You're confusing me. <laughs> yeah, the almost Shakespearean levels of ribbing. Yeah. yeah. And it's but, non-stop. But, like, I I really love that sequence. And I love, let's, like... You know what I like the most, maybe, is how much Stanley Tucci and Patricia Clarkson clearly like each other and like their children. Like, yeah. you don't see that. But, like, it's weird to say it, but you don't sort of see it as much. Like, the, the dynamic of the family that they... They have when their p- 
picking the bucket list to, yeah, to watch yeah, for movie I, night. I love that. And I love like, that because that is so much the way things happen in our house. Like, but like, oh, it's like, oh. but you always get to pick. Yes, I was the family member of the week. Yeah, you're always family member of the week. Because she picks you. She yeah. picks you. Points at the mum, <laughs> and yeah. the mum's like, "Are you accusing me of nepotism?" nepotism. <laughs> but even like. The little things. I mean, we were talking about it off mic, but the honey. Once we watch the bucket list, remember to cross watch the bucket list off of our bucket list. <laughs> yeah, I I love the bit where Brandon comes over. It's like mm. a boy in his room, <laughs> a boy in a room, and they just keep going. And Brandon's able just, to joke and Brandon's just like, with each other. oh, what the hell? This um, is a this <laughs> is a vibe I'm un, un and, and familiar with. An adopted son. He he does it too. Like yeah. he gets. He's in the weeds with them for the vast but majority of the time. There's that, uh, it's the line where um, later on when she's doing the sewing thing and she's, you know, swearing and sort of grunting and um, groaning when she pricks herself with the pins by accident and things. And Stanley Tucci walks into the room and says, what's going on in here? It sounds like you're having sex, but I know that it can't be it because you have a homosexual boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and how he sits down and is like, look. No judgment. I was gay myself at a time. <laughs> um, but, I, but like, I just... that's, the, that's the other part of it that makes them more than just comic relief, is how deeply they clearly feel for their daughter, yeah. and yeah. how there, there's a level of trust that they have in her. Yeah, that, that, that she yeah. is don't... telling them, hey, if you hear rumours about me having chlamydia, just come up with something witty and deflect... Yeah. And they're like, oh, should we be worried? Olive says no. They ask only one more time, and then they get on with it. No, 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 no. But then they have She's like, no, it's like, you shouldn't worry. It's just something that's going around. Then Stanley Tucci is, well, now I kind of am worried. <laughs> <laughs> but they have that bit later on with the the bit movie night. They ask her about mm. it again. I mean, they they know her. They know her very well. And they okay. trust her, and they know she's smart. And it's it's again, it's an interesting tightrope to walk. Where it, the effect it has is telling us that they are involved, caring, and um, good parents, not absentee ones who are just like, oh yeah, you do whatever. They like, know when to pull back. Yeah, and the the reason again that we can make this um, that it works for us is because Olive always seems so in control of what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And the moment she isn't is the moment she goes to them and tells them about it. Yeah. I do love the scene where she seeks a... where she's looking for a priest, and she goes all over <laughs> the place, and she finds Fred Arms. <laughs> Marianne's father. And I just love... It's like, uh, so, for argument's sake, let's say that hell exists. It does it exist. Is, it is real. It is real. <laughs> it is below our feet, below China, deep in the center of the earth. It is real. And it's like, it's like, okay, well, let's say, no, not let's say, say it's real. It's real. <laughs> it's and Fred Ormiston is playing that entirely straight. And I, do, I do also love that scene where uh, Olive is talking to her mum, mm. and her mum's like, look, I went through something similar, you know, when I was young. It's, it's such a great relationship yeah. that you really don't see in movies like this. The, the chemistry is so easy. Yeah. That's the thing. It, it is, feels it's like easy. you're looking at, obviously, a family who are all just in the drift with each other, mm. but they feel like a family. Yeah. Um, 
I also want to talk about when uh, Olive and Brandon are faking. Can you smell us? <laughs> it's I, I love how he's <laughs> it's he's so he can't bad. do the sound that he, he is needs so to bad do. at pretending to be straight because he is just so gay. What they do and the sounds they make are so absurd. Yeah, I look. This That's is just funny, but to I do me. like how in order to fake that they would done the act is she punches him in the stomach (laughs) just so that he's sort of like wheezing as if he has exerted himself that scene to me contains the least believable moment in this movie and that is when emma stone asks this girl whose house it is if there's a room where they can hook up and she's like oh yeah you can use my my bedroom it's like (laughs) what yeah I, I'm just telling you right now, guys, if you ever, ever ask me if there's a room in my house where you can hook up, the answer will be no, no matter there's what room outside. it is. I, the room does I, not exist. I barely am comfortable letting you use my bathroom. Like, no. <laughs> Fair enough. The room does not exist within the house. Fair enough. But I do love how the entire thing of what they're doing is they're pretending to have sex, this very mature adult thing, you know, <laughs> quotation marks, but they're jumping on the bed. Mm. They're being silly like children. I, all of this I stuff like the is fact incredibly that, immature on Olive's part. I like the fact that nobody else sees it, but it's like, she's so clearly putting it all on. Yeah. And, you know, that might come down to the fact that nobody, like, that very few people actually really knew her in the first I, place. I think it more comes down to the uh, the ultimate subtext that we haven't gotten around to addressing yet, which is the double standards of sexuality, the treatment of sexuality, the treatment of women in particular when they exercise their sexuality. Well, it's it's most clearly uh, shown the moment after Olive and Brandon fake it. He walks out to to cheers and backslaps while the response to her is derision and suspicion. Like, and that is a very real double standard that exists. not only with male and female sexuality, but also how uh, losing losing one's virginity is portrayed mm. uh, in not only society but in media. And you know, there's been studies upon studies that have looked into uh, the pressure on men from other men to lose one's virginity to somehow become a man. And those studies have looked into the rise in incel culture and other ideas around self-worth, but likewise, studies have been undertaken into how uh, sexually active women or women who are perceived to be sexually active are devalued by peers in certain circumstances. It, mm. One would hope that it has shifted over time, but it is something that's still- it's a work still, in progress. It's a work in progress. The world is a work in progress, but it is something that sadly still exists. Uh, it was present in 2010. It was present when the Scarlet Letter came out. It is present now. Um, and one of the notes in about the Scarlet Letter is the the priest that the character shook shook shack had sex with. I was about to say shacked up with, but anyway, he doesn't have to walk around with the Scarlet Letter, does he? No. He doesn't have to do shit. You- That's because it's expected for him. Well, he's and- a priest, John. I'm not sure well, it's expected. Well, you know, not necessarily expected, but as a man. It's sort of 
Well, the, the onus is well. The implication. Accepted. I don't know if it's accepted or expected, but I think the suggestion is that it's the woman's fault. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that he, she was a he corrupting force. He can't be punished. Yes. He just has natural yes. urges. That she's the Jezebel who has corrupted him. It's yeah. that bullshit. Um, mm. I think that one of the 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 best bit in terms of this movie's underlying philosophy for all of that comes when um Emma Stone is talking about the Scarlet Letter and she talks about how the main character of the Scarlet Letter bore it all with you know, quiet solemnity and, and dignity. And she's just like, that's not really something I'm good at. <laughs> it just goes yeah, with... Uh, wasn't it, like, with humbleness and grace? Yeah. I nah. don't really have those. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a great sort of um, example of uh, of that shift in perspective and sort of the, the kind mm. of, like, angry sort of, like, punk feminist kind of yeah. thing that yeah. underpins that part of the movie. Um, I and, like that. That's the message. It's just like yeah. well, and, and, no. In, uh, as part don't of just that, take de- it. yeah, and as part of that depiction, she is trying to embrace her sexuality, even though she hasn't done anything. She still comes up against bullshit for it. She comes up against male expectation and uh, derision from her peers. It's it is something that will sadly exist, and I'm glad that the movie didn't. Obviously, it's the point of the movie, but I'm glad that the movie didn't hesitate with showing that it's not just a one-and-done, you-fought-the-law-and-the-law-one bullshit. It is a process. It is something that's going to keep happening. You can't just run out there and say, I'm going to be the skankiest skank in Skankville, (laughs) and everyone's, like, turning away. No, people are going to keep on their bullshit, especially those who have vested interests to stay on their bullshit. And... I know, that's one of the really interesting elements for the film, and one of the reasons why I quite like it is it clearly comes down on a side, but it's not afraid with showing that there will always be pushback. Even when you're on the right side of history, it's not easy. It's never going to be easy. It's never going to stay easy. It is something you have to contend with. Well, it feels like we have reached an end for our conversation here. Is there anything either of you two would like to add? I'd like to add... You've had a weirdly religious-focused week. Yeah, I have, in retrospect, haven't I? Yeah. Yeah. Weird how it comes down that way. Well, yeah, because maybe all... that's just 2010 for you. Yeah, they're all ordered and, and... in terms of release, so who knows? And the week that we have is people coming into their own, be that good, bad, or okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So weird how it themes that way. And, I mean, we didn't talk about it, but we also watched Anchorman and Eurovision. Uh, but we'd spoken of but those. we'd yeah. spoken about those. Um, we just put them on for a laugh. But those, as well, have mm. people coming into their own as people. Obviously in different ways. In different ways. But, I don't know. That's interesting. Okay. Um. So, now, why don't we say who our MVP is for this movie? What our favourite scene or sequence is? And, of course, who we would recast with this podcast's patron saint. Character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> I will start us off and I will say that my MVP here has got to be Emma Stone. I said right at the very top of my 30 seconds, this is a movie that made her a movie star. Like, she walks on screen and she just owns this movie. It is hers. And that is a hell of a thing considering that she is acting alongside some really, really talented people 
giving some really, really striking performances, um, she still walks away with it entirely. And there's never a second where that's in doubt. And as I explained at uh, the beginning of our, our deep dive discussion, I think it's really important that this movie is on the back of a performer this assured. Because I, I feel like if you had gotten it wrong, if you had gotten someone who couldn't carry it in that same way, um, it all of a sudden it wouldn't have looked so right-headed anymore. It would have been yeah. a fairly uncomfortable movie, I think. It and would have so, turned into The Scarlet Letter. Yeah. Emma Stone, exactly, you're exactly right. And Emma Stone is is the reason why this can be called a comedy, quite frankly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm going to go with her. It is the moment that her career reached its, you know, final Pokemon evolution and she became Emma Stone superstar. Mm. And it's uh, never really faded since then. No, it's only gotten gotten bigger. La La Land, obviously, Oscar winner. Now all these Yorgos Lanthimos movies. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that Yorgos Lanthimos is a, a, a director who just seems a little bit too out there for me. I've never really sat down and, like, I think the main premise of Lobster sort of weirded me out a little bit, but, hey, maybe that's the week we can have Hey, this John, week. you've seen Tusk, you can sit through that. Yeah, the, far, the favourite <laughs> doesn't have any of that stuff in it, it's just a yeah. satire, um... Emma Stone, uh, yeah. Yes, Emma Stone, in terms of my favourite scene or sequence, it's really tough because every scene has got such great dialogue in it and has such great Emma Stone moments through it. I think in the end, what I am going to pick is that first scene with the parents because it really sums up what I like most about the movie, the wit, the dialogue, the chemistry between the actors, how much fun everyone's clearly having the good humour with which these topics are being treated. And, um, you know, I would I would watch a spin-off. I would watch a weekly sitcom of yeah. this family just doing stuff. <laughs> Although, would they have the material for that? Uh, they'd need a very talented and productive writing team. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, you know, would hopefully get paid a lot. Yeah. Uh and for who I would recast with this podcast patron saying character John Lithgow, well, it's got to be the Tucci role. It's got to be Dill. <laughs> um, I think it's it's so obvious. I think he can bring exactly that same uh, charm that Stanley Tucci does to that role. Uh, that same sort of lovability, goofiness, but also the care um, and the mm. warmth. I think that he would really fit there. And uh, I know I, I've, I'm on record. Everything's better with a touch of the Tucci. But everything's even <laughs> everything's even better than that with a bit of John Lithgow. So mm. uh, I gotta go with that. So for me, my MVP, I was going between uh, the scriptwriter and Emma Stone, but I'm gonna have to land on Emma Stone. Without Emma Stone, it doesn't work. Without Emma Stone and her, frankly, at that point, unearned confidence as a performer, uh, just nails it every time and. She has only grown more and more confident, more and more skilled since. She has an amazing comedic sensibility. She nails the dramatic parts that she has to do. And she just has this energy about her that draws the eye in the scene she's in. You want to see what her process is. You want to see what she's doing in the scene. Because she knows the secret behind acting on screen, which is don't stand still and wait for shit. Always be active in the role. 
and that's the secret that she's really cottoned on to. So it's going to be Emma Stone for my MVP. My favorite scene of sequence, I agree with Lawson on this. It's the first scene where you see uh, the Tooch and his family. <laughs> it's like, that's gold tier shit right there. I I love the fact that they were a blended family. I love the fact that they have this easy chemistry going on. And the script is just funny. It is just funny. It is so good and so well paced out too. Uh, it was my first laugh out loud scene, while the rest of them are chuckles. And that just goes to show you how strong the script is, honestly. And this scene is probably the strongest out of them, if we're talking about comedy. Who I would get as Lithgow was a tough one, because there are like four perspective roles, right? There's uh, Oliver's father, there is Thomas Hayden Church's character, there is the principal, yeah, and then there is uh, the priest, Fred Yeah, Robinson's but do you role. really want to steal food out of Malcolm McDowell's yeah, mouth? I'm not going to slap the soup spoon <laughs> out of Malcolm McDowell's hand and say, no! <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Uh, Fred Armisen is perfect where he is. Creepy, too. Uh, creepy, too. But perfect where he is. And uh, also, it's a, role, it's a role that's a little too small. And Lithgow's it's a little, a little too, too noticeable. Like, yeah. Even Fred Armisen, bless him, is a bit too noticeable. Um, and I, I really don't want to lose Thomas Hayden Church's kick dog energy when he needs to turn that on. And when he has to turn that on, he always nails it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's but, like playing the Sandman was him <laughs> getting ready. Um, but he also has this wonderful quality when he's talking to the students. Yeah. Uh, he's like the quintessential cool teacher. He's not putting it on, but he's just charming. Yeah. So, I'm sorry, Stanley Tucci. You're going to the back of the line, my friend. John, Lu- <laughs> John Lithgow is playing Oliver's father, Mr. Pendergast. He would bring the exact right energy he needs to. He is witty, warm, and loving, and funny. And he can bring a lot of that third rock from the sun energy, but playing a much smarter character. Because you could not call this character from third rock to the sun intelligent. Um, but he's well-meaning. And he could bring that energy to the character exceptionally well. As this Jonathan goes by. Yeah, I give it to Emma Stone. I mean, she absolutely crushes the role. She comes in with superstar energy. Mm. And that is always such a great thing to see. Someone who seems fully formed when they just get into the business. And she'd been in stuff before this. And she would be in some things afterwards to help, as you pointed out earlier. But this is the one that showed what she was capable of. The dramatic parts that she does where she's confessing in the church to no one in particular, except for maybe, you know, the big guy. And the comedy parts where she's on her Ferris Bueller shtick is so good. And the dialogue just sings coming out of her. For my favorite scene or sequence, again, one of the best adoption jokes I've ever heard in my life. And performed expertly, like... Like, Chef Slowick himself has come down and prepared a meal for us. Just beautiful. Hmm. Excellent. Excellent delivery. It's not a joke that is, is mean about it or is... No, no, it isn't. About it. It's, it's, it reveals... It's a dad joke. Yeah, it reveals a lot about the family. It reveals yeah. that they have this very sort of healthy relationship, that they don't keep things sort of buttoned down, that they've been yeah. very much... That's very much a dialogue. <laughs> I know? do love when he... Uh, in one of the scenes, when he goes to the goes to sit by his son at the table, he's like, "So, where are you from? <laughs> where are you from originally? Yeah, yeah." And it's like, and it's like, 
I love that energy so much. So I think that scene for me, because that's the first moment where you realize, oh, this is why she is the way she is. Yeah. And that's always fun to see, to see why a person has ended up like they are. I'm sure when you have spoken to our parents, you've oh, sort yeah. of gotten You idea. understand. The minute I went into your house and there were all of those like fake skulls and spooky looking <laughs> things all around the place... It but ma- it also a lot clashes with some of the other shit around the place. Yeah, it made a lot of sense. Let's yeah. put it that way. <laughs> yeah, th- I think that's people's response whenever they meet our parents. Like, They're like, oh, oh yeah, that, that explains sense. it. And that's so interesting that that's in this movie. Plus, I mean, you got the Tooch. I mean, what? You're not going to love a touch of the Tooch? I mean, he's great. And you got and us Patricia to start does- saying the Tooch, yeah. Wilson. And you Patricia- brought it up first. And Patricia hey, does teach not. Teach you the Tooch. We're on a roll with these. And, and and honestly, Patricia, no slouch either. Mm. Absolutely crushes that role of doting mum with a sense of slight wickedness about her. Well, she's also kind of like, like very sort of ditzy energy, and I really like that. But like, it's it's calculated. Yeah, that yeah. she always wants to be fun. Yeah, and I really love that energy. And again, as you said, there's a lot of chuckles in this movie. That was the first laugh out loud uh, moment. I could have burst someone's eardrum if they were sitting next to me. Thank Christ I wasn't. Uh, And yeah, I think out of all of the characters, Malcolm McDowell, look, I'll give him this one. He can... (laughs) I'm not... not Plus, he's not really in there for long... You know, it's like two scenes, isn't it? I don't well, don't want him to be too safe, because if he stops striving, if he gets comfortable, then <laughs> he's not going to go for these weird choices, and I don't want him to have too much fun. I um, feel like this is getting dangerously close to cyberbullying Malcolm McDowell. Sure, sure. <laughs> I do want to say that all of this shit we're saying about him being an acting vagrant, completely not true. He, he has a home. He has a home. <laughs> All right. Okay. So who are you picking then, Sean? Uh, I think it has to be Dill. Sorry, Stanley. Uh, you're good. Well, you're just not good enough, see? I think this might be the first time in the entire run of the podcast where we have all the three of us had unanimous <laughs> choices for all three of these options. Because Lithgow can't really do that kick dog energy that Hayden Church can just turn on. I don't know, you, you guys haven't seen Last Night, um, hmm. Late Night, sorry, Late Night, where he plays yeah, Emma Thompson's let's go husband. Can, let's go yeah, but it, it feels like every word that hits Thomas Hayden Church in, it it looks like it rips away a part of his soul every time, and there's something hmm. special about that, that he does seem so put upon. There's something world-weary about. Exactly, yeah, that's exactly. It. Uh, the way that you compared Angelina Jolie in our Salt episode to a Sphinx. Yeah, back when it was built, he looks like the Sphinx now. Weathered with Weathered, time. aged, like he's been through the elements. And well, like that, I don't want to take that away. That that cartoon dog with the, the jowls who's always mm-hmm. super unhappy. Droopy dog. Yeah. Oh, oh no. <laughs> but yeah, I have to give it to Dale because the teacher's good, but it can be better. So now we're going to do our short little segment. Who in this movie would retain? Who would pay for a blue check mark on Twitter? Anson, the guy who tries to the force first, himself. The first kid to proposition her. To lie. That's not Brandon, the 
Oh, the guy at the pool. Yeah, kid at the pool. Really? He paid for Jack Mark because he sees it as supporting Musk. Mm-hmm. I he does it as a contributing to a fan-free Twitter. Oh, Malcolm McDowell's character definitely. It feels like because yes, he needs he leaves... to reach the youth. Um. <laughs> no, I, I, feel like I feel like it's more that once he leaves public education, he is going to be like I, I, I don't know, old man yelling at clouds, sort no, of. No, he's, he's going to transition quite. I'm surprised none of you a prison warden. I've sound, I'm surprised none of you have said Marianne yet because I think uh, she no, would I think fit she the would tea. look at Twitter as a cesspit. Yeah, but Twitter, not now that yeah, Musk's Twitter has run. too many gay people. I think for her liking, mm. I think she would have already jumped over to Parlor, perhaps. <laughs> Definitely Fair. would have been at January sixth. I don't know if she would have. She I wouldn't think... have gone in. She wouldn't have gone in. She would have been there. She'd be shouting out on the lawn. Yeah, she wouldn't have. Broken any laws <laughs> in the air quotes. In massive quotation marks. Yeah, I don't know. I think hmm, I'm not with you on the guy at the pool. I'm Anson, the guy who tries to to force, force himself. himself on it. Yeah, I'm. I'm more on. I with see that, that as a pick. Yeah, him or Malcolm McDowell's principal character, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to put it to a vote: whether or not we're a pro Easy A podcast or not. Lawson, why don't you call us your vote first? I don't know why I sounded like a pirate there, but there you go. Curse your vote first, mate. Um, I'm going to say yes. I've detailed some problems I have with this movie, but the thing of it is, is that it's just so charming and funny and fun throughout that it overcomes any of that narrative <laughs> shakiness. It just has an overabundance of personality and a true power star-making performance from Emma Stone in the centre of it. And... In the end, it's got its heart in the right place, and it's just such fun to watch, so I'm yeah. going to go yes. Uh, I would have to say yes. The movie has its heart in the right place, the script is incredibly witty, and I love me a literary reference, as, you know, kind of shoved down our throat as it is in this mm. one. Uh, I love a reference to the Scarlet Letter, you know, I just like what the movie is saying, that the imbalance is wrong, the judgement is wrong, and that... Everyone should mind their own business, ultimately. Uh, yeah. And I also like that it promotes open communication with children's and, children and the parents. Hmm. So, that's pretty cool, too. Yeah, I'm pro this movie as well. Everything that uh, the guys have said, it's smart. It's like you're being waterboarded with comedy in the best possible way. It has so much chemistry between the actors. Personally, I don't think there's a performance out of step in this movie and that is fantastic in itself all of the things it's saying are important about the imbalance between men and women and the way that sexuality between them even between uh heterosexual and gay or bisexual people are seen that kind of imbalance is spoken about which is all stuff that would have been on the writer's mind because he based the character of Grandin off of himself. Uh, everything it's saying is incredibly important, but it never forgets to just be a great movie. You leave it feeling better than you went in, and that's what a comedy should do. If you've learned something, that's an absolute plus. It's an easy A from me. You were waiting for that shit, weren't you, John? Oh yeah, I was, I was waiting this entire time for my opportunity. See, that's what it's like when I've got one loaded in the barrel. Yeah, you, not you, like last week. You pat yourself on the back about it. 
Yes, I've got handprints on my back from how much I do it. <sighs> and you ruined the joke. Uh, so, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are a pro EZA podcast. So, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Laws at Exit Do the Candy kind of a join myself on the proud side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which which is the best place to give us episode specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about Easy A? Uh, what is your opinion on the movie? What do you think about the humor? What's your favorite version of a Scarlet Le- the Scarlet Letter? Yeah. And what is your favorite Taylor Swift song? Why not? Yeah. And what is Just your favorite to get engagement from the Swifties? And what is your favorite underground Malcolm McDowell role? Yeah. Tell us. The nastier, the better. Tell us if you have seen that. A uh, devil goes to court movie. The fact that Rutger <laughs> Hauer and Malcolm McDowell never sort of fist fought each other in terms of in a movie to see who was more desperate boggles you, the mind. You can't prove that it hasn't happened. Uh, you can also like, rate, comment, and subscribe on your podcast step of choice. Just keep in mind that on certain podcast apps, it is for the show on the whole when you comment, and on others, it is for specific episodes. If it just so happens that on the service you use, it is for the episode for the full show. Uh, just tell us which episode you're talking about. It yep. just helps us correct any issues, uh, do anything like that. It's just for our ease of use. But please do like, rate, comment, and subscribe. There's a lonely man out in the wasteland. He seeks purpose in a world fallen to the machines. At traveling shows, he plays his bit parts and then moves along his way. The caravans are loaded and ramble on down the road, but he's not on them. He will show up from time to time on the outskirts of the mega cities. You see him out there, hat, coat, boots, his steed not too far behind him, a mechanical horse he calls Silver. But he never makes his way inside, he is done with that kind of life. He seeks the fringes of acting experience, he seeks not comfort, but truth. He's not a sedentary man, he is a wanderer. I'm not going to tell you who he is. We all know who he is. (laughs) You know. You know. You know. So, Lawson, what have you got prepared for us? Can, can we actually just call ourselves at the top a pro-Malcolm McDowell podcast? Yes. Uh, we are a pro-Malcolm McDowell podcast, but I feel like... You don't think it's it, one of our flagship I things. don't think we call it... A, I mean, Lithgow, he's in a special position. Yeah. I don't mm. want to devalue that. It's John Lithgow and werewolves. Yeah. Werewolves when applicable. Werewolves when applicable. We don't lead the show with werewolves. We'll say that no. John Lithgow is at the top and beneath... Malcolm McDowell and werewolves. Yeah, and the Tooch. Can you imagine if we Malcolm like McDowell played a werewolf? Can you Opposite imagine if John Lithgow played a werewolf? Ah, oh, good stuff. But um, <laughs> it feels good in me brain. It quiets the spiders. It makes it go burr. Mm. Uh, anyways, what are we going to talk about next week? Well, we'll be talking about a movie that I know you guys have wanted to talk about. I've got around to watching it finally, and it is indeed worth the discussion. It is David Finch's The Social Network. Are you plugged in now? <laughs> if you would like to watch along at home, it is available for streaming in Australia on Netflix, Prime Video, Paramount Plus, and Foxtel Now. It's also available for purchase or rental on the YouTube, Telstra, Fetch, Apple, and Amazon stores. However, it is only available in 4K on the Apple Store. I like sitting next to you, John. It makes me feel so tough. That <laughs> should have been. It makes me feel so smart. But, yeah. Uh, but yes, so join us next week for when I suppose we're going to have a wonderful discussion about the social network. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Of course, we've got so much experience, not only with Facebook, but with the film itself. Uh, we've studied theatre, and there are two of us. So hmm. I think Lawson's going to have a fun time wrangling us. I'm an idiot, and there's two of me. Uh, so join us next week for that. Uh, I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue to be Jean Lewis. I got a pocket, got a pocket full of sunshine. I got a love that I know that it's all my love.